Psychology in Seattle. So, Umberto, have you seen Mindhunter season one and season two? I've seen all of season one, and I've seen most of season two. I watched the first eight and a half episodes. Oh, is it nine? Missing, yeah, I'm missing half. One and a half episodes. Interesting. Okay. So, well, let's talk about it because a lot of people are asking us to talk about it. What do you say? Yeah, let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Umberto? My name is Umberto Castaneda, and I work at Star Tours down in Disneyland. Who is your favorite serial killer presented in in the show? Uh, Well, of the ones I've seen, I actually was, uh, well, you know, I I think... uh, Kemper, is that his last name? Mm-hmm. Kemper is just definitely fascinating. Uh, but I'm sort of going to ex- excuse myself from that one because he was already really fascinating in the first season. So I'm going to talk a little bit about season two. Um, I actually really thought that the whole interaction with um, Manson was fascinating. I was not expecting it to go that way. He's not even a serial killer. And yet, uh, and then I guess I didn't. I didn't realize that he was going to be so like, hey, man, it wasn't me, you know. Uh, so that that was really intriguing. Um, and then as well as the follow up with the text dude. Um, so, I, yeah, I really um, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but I was fascinated by that. Yeah, I don't know how accurate it is, but I, I think it is from my memory of different uh, interviews that they've done with Charles Manson. I think that <clears throat> the reason why Manson was like that was because he wanted people to understand that he was that good. He was that charismatic. I think that was part of his thing was mm. that he didn't necessarily get off on the idea that he could kill people because he wasn't the sort of person who was wanting to kill someone. Mm-hmm. What he did want to do is control people because it made it you know supplied his narcissism right that he could one get a bunch of dropout teenagers to hang out with him then that he could get them to listen to him play music then that they could listen to him spout about different political beliefs and then, race war well but previous to that it was about love and about mm, right and he kind of talks about that about like let go of your mind like i th- in the mindhunter season 2 the scene with charles manson was uh, done so well because there are certain elements to his spouting that yeah. he did in the show and probably in prison and also obviously when he had his cult that rings true yeah stuff that on some level is is very uh, hippie uh, philosophy uh, but kind of resonates with me right. like free your mind man like you're just a you're just a fake you're just sitting there in your <laughs> in your button-up suit trying to act like you're you're important but you're right. not important you're a joke just like everyone else i'm a joke right. everyone's a joke what why are you playing this game like let time it, is time's not a thing man yeah i mean it well so there's the there's the stonerisms but there's some of it that i absolutely resonate with sure. you know like i when i was a teenager and first came upon philosophy like this, I uh, really took to it and still do. Like there's a lot of this that just really appeals to me. And so uh, the scene with Manson was, was 
interesting in that way because yeah. I was personally like, okay, Charles Manson, let me join your stupid cult. You know, I've, it, I, I like this philosophy. Well, and, and the fact that usually uh, Holden's able to kind of break into most, most of the people he ends up talking to, most of the serial killers he ends up talking to, he ends up breaking into their little world somehow. And he was like thwarted at the gates with Manson. Like basically there was, Manson was completely unfazed. Yeah. And there was nowhere to go. It was like, oh, at least, I don't know if they, do they talk to him again in the, no. okay. So yeah. Um, and, and it was really interesting what Kemper said. Because um, what's what's Holden's, uh, the main guy, the main cop? Tench. Uh, Tench. Tench says, like, well, you know, we, uh, we're going to talk to Manson or whatever. And um, Kemper's like, oh, yeah, okay, well, the hype machine or whatever. Uh, if, if you really want to know what's up, talk to Tex. And then uh, Tench goes, well, yeah, Tex, I mean, just a puppet. Just a, and then Kemper goes... Oh, if you say so. <laughs> and it's like really insightful. Well, so that actually was part of the show that I was like, huh? Like, what are they saying? Because on one level, I guess Kemper and Manson were saying that it was all Texas uh, doing, that he was the sadistic psychopath. Which, yeah. Um, but then we get to Tex, and Tex is like, no, you don't understand the... Uh, the power that Manson had over us and how persuasive he was uh, essentially is what Tex is saying. And he, and he gives this impression like he was just this clean cut, very influential, influential white kid, you know, from the suburbs. Uh, what do you think about that? I, the sense I get, and I, of course it's just a show and who knows if this was sad or whatever, but I'm going to give Kemper's uh, intellect the benefit of the doubt here. Because the sense I got was, well, wait a minute. Okay, so he was on drugs, and he certainly bought into generally the BS from from Manson. But a, he still went. He's he's he still was the the main leader of those murders, and definitely was aggressively murdering those people. B, um, he says himself, he's like, well. I I don't know if I would have. I, I hope I wouldn't have murdered anyone, but you know I've thought about it. You know everyone has whatever. It's like wait wait what? And then he's like, um, and then the other thing is he kind of would fit the profile in, in many other ways because he's, um, uh, he's a young white male with obviously he's not of he's not doing following the normal path of things. He did join this cult and then he. The fact that he was on tons of drugs, well, a lot a lot of these folk end up having problems with alcohol or with drugs or both or whatever. So that that's not like rules him out. So, I, yeah, I, 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 it gave me a different perspective. Like, sure, clearly Manson was me- mentally manipulating a lot of these people. But th- there's no power on earth that can mentally manipulate me to go and murder some people. So it's it's like there are several steps removed to then also being able to do that. Well... You know, I always take issue with statements like that because you don't know what you would do at the age of 19 or however old Tex was at the time. Well, I mean, I do because I was trying to be influenced to be reborn as a Christian by the reborn Christian folk. And I was like, no, thanks. I'm cool. So the most. But that's a different scenario. Like, imagine you're a disaffected youth. Yeah. The, The culture at the time 
is such that no one trusts the police. No one trusts the adults. There are uh, actual things happening that look like maybe there is a revolution in in the United States. Maybe there will be an an overthrowing of the government. I mean, it, it was uh, a viable perspective. Just like when we were growing up, it was viable to think that we were all going to die from a nuclear uh, holocaust. It, but everyone felt that way, and everyone was on drugs, and not most people didn't brutally murder. No, no, no. Uh, but but I'm giving you the background sure. of like the. Uh, the influences that slowly lead a uh, impressionable. Now, maybe you wouldn't have done it. I, I can never know that, obviously. Yeah. But the notion of that people look at stories like this and go like, well, obviously something must be wrong with text, because if I was there or normal people were there, they wouldn't have done that. And it's possible, of course, we'll never know because we have no way of actually opening up people's minds and like measuring things. But Time and time again, things like this happen uh, in multiple different venues, not only obviously in these rare situations of murder, but in situations where you find yourself in an abusive relationship for three years. And five years later, you're looking back at it and you're like, how did I even get into that? I'm not I don't feel like I'm that kind of person. Or you find yourself in a situation at work where you have a boss who is extremely abusive to you and you put up with a lot of shit. And then 10 years later, you look back and you're like, how did I, why did I put up with that shit? I was raised well enough to know to push back. I'm the sort of person that doesn't put up with shit like that. Why did I put up with shit like that? And the the answer is because we're not individuals. We're not like walking around uh, in complete isolation of our own minds. We are absolutely like at least half affected by the system that we're in. Yeah, but but don't mistake like because I I'm certainly not saying oh no no Texas evil. That's what I'm saying. Clearly, by the point that Texas got involved with Manson, his neural pathways had been set in such a way that he would be likely to fo- go along with such such stories. Maybe that he would be likely to want to want to go along with the drugs, and then that he would be likely to freaking brutally murder these people. Right. And and sure, he's a product of his environment, as are all the serial killers. Right. So th- that I agree with that. Uh, someone else. If he had tasked Manson, had tasked one of the other cult members with leading one of those charges, I, I think Squeaky Fromm might have been up for it, but someone else might have been like, uh, would have done it differently or, or would have somehow sabotaged the mission or something. Yeah. Like maybe Tex, and it seems like likely that Tex, because uh, there's other interviews, obviously Mindhunter isn't the only data we have that point towards text being quite a um, uh, psychopathic sort of leaning person. But the question of would text have murdered anyone if he never met Manson, I believe no, because most people don't murder people. Most psychopaths don't murder people. And so uh, I believe when I saw the Mindhunter show, what I liked about it it is that they just sort of lay out the data. Ed Kemper thinks – that Texas is a monster or a secret monster on some level. Manson says, I'm not a monster at all. It was Tex. Tex says, I was confused and influenceable, and Manson absolutely intimated at the very least. You know, he built us up to this to this act, and uh, it was, you yeah. know, it was, I was manipulated. Me and all the other people were just manipulated by his extremely charismatic presentation. And I think all are true. 
but where I land on is Manson is a extremely influencing human being. Oh yeah, and uh, and for people, what I want people to understand is how when someone like Manson comes along <clears throat> that is extremely influ- influencing and extremely charismatic, uh, people will follow and they will do things that they would never have done otherwise. Yeah. And then it's happening today. Like you could almost say that this podcast has that kind of power. Like people like this podcast. If you're listening right now, you probably like this podcast. You probably uh, are influenced by me and Umberto. Uh, I have that power. Drink uh, some tea right now. Yeah, and uh, and if I said something uh, that contradicted something that you thought out there, you probably I was I've probably convinced you of things because. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, I'm like 3% Charles Manson in that I, I have that ability to like change people's minds. Um, I don't think I've ever said that out loud before, even really thought it, but, but you do look like him a lot. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, I'm a songwriter. But That's like, right. Um, and the, uh, so this is happening all the time. It's, it's just that in these rare circumstances, it ends up doing extremely antisocial things. Um, what I would hope is that I'm using my power, my charisma for pro-social means to actually help society. But, you know, one could argue that I'm not. The, the, but the point is, is that uh, we don't have to just look, you know, a lot of times people go, oh, you know, the Charles Manson story, this 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 uh, cult, this weird, like exotic situation. No, no, no. These are happening all the time. <laughs> you know, therapists, teachers, uh particular family members, people on the news, podcasters, uh, actors, uh, we are we are influenceable uh, to uh, an extreme degree. And when we recognize that, then we can actually kind of do something with it. We can actually say, okay, well, what charismatic people should we be following? What charismatic people should we not be following? Right. What, how, I am not an individual. I am a product of my environment. Uh, I am like, like just take for instance, for me, uh, I listen to podcasts. Who am I letting influence me? And do I want them to influence me? I've been listening to the Conan O'Brien podcast lately, and I find it delightful. And uh, I liked Conan O'Brien before, but I really like him now because the podcast is really fun. And he's very, he just seems like a really great guy, Conan O'Brien. And I'm letting him influence me. And if I reflect on that, I think, hmm, I'm okay with that because the effect that he has on me is probably good. And so that's what I hope that people walk away with uh, and when they learn about the Charles Mandel story and they, and they see it depicted in Mindhunter. It's probably really difficult uh, because <clears throat> um, most people don't practice that level of introspection as a rule. Um, and, of well, course— And they think that they're an individual— well, who, and even if who thinks individual thoughts and isn't influenceable? Sure, but even if for some, let's say they they did believe. Well, I mean, I am a member of my community, my church, my thing, my stuff. You know, if you put the question, for example, uh, let's say someone is is a devout fo- follower of uh, of our current president, and you said, uh, "Are you think? Do you think that that might influence you when when he talks or when he tweets or things like that?" Um, they might say. 
Sure, but I mean, I agree with it. And I think that's, that's the catch, is that, the, you know, and some people are so good that they might, they might actually bring someone along that doesn't agree with them, right? But a lot of times, uh, it's, it's a game of inches. It's like, oh, that sounds reasonable. Like, like you were just saying, <clears throat> you hear Manson say something like, man, we're all, just, we're all just nothing, you know? It's like, oh, well, actually, that, that sounds reasonable. And then the next inch is like, and love is important. Oh, well, that sounds reasonable. And here are these songs. Well, that sounds reasonable. And I mean, what is the problem with doing a little pot? Well, that sounds reasonable. And like, you know, there's other ways to expand your mind. That sounds reasonable. And then two years later, let's practice yelling at this empty chair and, and insulting it because this is the pigs. And Well, that sounds reasonable. And then more right. things sound reasonable. Uh, if you want to see the full slippery slope that Umberto is depicting, watch Charlie Says a movie that came out last year directed by the woman who directed American Psycho. It is, to my knowledge, the best depiction of the cult of the, the Manson family and how it uh, progressed in a, and how it was really. Because people have a lot of ideas in their head about the Manson family. Right. Uh, and it, you know, they're this crazed sex cult that like wanted to kill everyone. And 99.999% of the time, it was a very loving group that had a lot of fun together and bonded together and did did a lot of good things for each other and helped each other uh, they foraged for food they uh, you know supported each other they right. they made meals together they ate together they you know they hung out together uh, it wasn't until later when Manson started to I think uh, get uh, my 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 main sort of hypothesis or conceptualization of what turned a just a regular dirty hippie commune into a killing cult was that Manson was so uh troubled and in need of so much narcissistic supply and they kind of depict that in the the TV show Mindhunter but just how frantic he was you yeah. know he he couldn't really sit still and i think that uh, as he went down this road, it was like in the beginning, I don't know if I've talked about this with you or on the podcast before, so excuse me if I have, but you know, in the beginning, like I said, it was like, okay, can I get uh, dirty hippie dropout kids to hang out with me? Oh, uh, there we go again. No, just <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, and so it's like, oh, I got, I got three uh, hippies right. to hang out with me. That makes me feel like I'm a special person. Well, that wears off after a couple of weeks. Okay. Well, now I need five more. Okay, I got that. I feel good for a couple of weeks. I f- I can avoid my deep dark abyss of mm-hmm. of uh, in my soul because I was massively mistreated growing up, uh, and I I and then it's like well can, now I need them to listen to me sing. Now I need them to. Uh, move into a commune together. Now I need them to take their clothes off at, at command. Now I need them to have sex with me. Now I need them to have sex with each other. Now I need them to do that. Now I need them to listen to me. Well, eventually that, he, you know, because every step of the way, it would give him a little bit of satisfaction, but that would wear off. And then he'd right. have to go higher and higher. And eventually he's like, well, <clears throat> what if I started convincing them to be violent? Right. Um, okay, what if I started to uh, convince them that there's a war happening? Okay, what if I actually said, well, you know, go out and kill people? And it wasn't until then 
you know, when he, when his influence caused those kinds of uh, behaviors, that's when the law got involved, and that's when that when it ended. But if he hadn't been caught, then I, I'm quite positive it just would have you know escalated right. from there. Not because Manson wanted to kill people, but because he was a frantic, desperate need for narcissistic supply, and that's just where it had. And, uh, and he certainly, uh, although you're. I'm sure you're right that, well, at least the evidence doesn't show that he personally wanted to kill people with his own hands. He certainly didn't care. <laughs> like, he wasn't, like, no. beat up about the murders. <laughs> right, right. He, he, he didn't care. Uh, the other thing was that, and they show this in Charlie Says, and this is, you know, a, a big part of the Manson story, is that if he had become a famous musician, if they had signed him right. and recorded him, and put him on tour and, and sold his records, that would have also supplied his narcissism. Yeah. And in all likelihood, he never would have killed anybody. Right. Because he, he, all he wanted was narcissistic supply. Yeah. He, I don't think he cared where it came from. And uh, when he wasn't, when it looked like he wasn't going to be f- a famous musician and he wasn't going to get that narcissistic supply, that's when he started going into a dark yeah, yeah. Uh, road. And he was also extremely revenge, vengeful of famous people for having rejected him to, to be in the uh, music industry. Anyway, let's get back to Mindhunter. So Rotten Tomatoes, what do you think it got, gets on for Rotten For season two? Yeah. Oh, um, oh okay. I'm going to go... Critics gave it 80%. 98. 98? Yeah, audience. Amazing. Oh, audience, uh, 90. 95. Okay. Extremely highly rated. Uh, Executive produced by David Fincher, Charlize Theron. Did you know that? I did not know that. And and others. Uh, For those who don't know, it's based on real events happening in the late 70s, early 80s. Season one is 1977 to 1979-ish, and season two is 1980. It's basically about the FBI slowly realizing that they need to figure out the psychological uh, profiles of serial killers. They actually, during the show, they invent the term ser- serial killer because serial killing was a relatively new phenomenon in the 70s. And the FBI are trying to figure out what to do about it, and they're failing. And they're thinking, okay, well, we have maybe if we start if we start this department in the FBI that looks at behaviors and psychology and uh, behavioral science unit is what it's called so that they can find them and stop them. And it's mainly, the show mainly focuses on two FBI agents, Holden and Tench, um, as they interview serial killers to try to figure out why the convicted serial killers did what they did so they can catch the serial killers that are still uh, at large. Right. Um, So let's get into some of the psychology of this show. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about are Holden's panic attacks. Uh, what did you think about that whole thing? I mean, <laughs> I think it would be hard to imagine that anyone wouldn't have at least some lingering damaged effects from that experience that he that he went through in the end of season one. Uh, because, you know, not only... Not only would it be extremely scary to be in a room unsupervised with some serial killer, but the serial killer in question physically is is a mountain, and uh, and and completely could overpower him easily, you know, and all these things. So 
uh, I wasn't surprised that that caused him, you know, some severe panic. Um, and I thought they, I thought they started by depicting it well, but um, I do think that they kind of dropped the topic. You know, it's like the first couple episodes. It was it was a subject, and now maybe it comes up in the last episode or something. But uh, there were many episodes where it just didn't kind of reoccur, and right. I was a little surprised by it because um, I thought I thought well, he got over that quickly. <laughs> yeah, actually, thinking back, I think that is true. So Holden has a panic attack at the end of season one when Kemper scares right. him essentially. And he collapses in the hallway, and uh, he thought he was having a heart attack, and he wakes up in the hospital. He's still panicking. This is the beginning of season two. He's strapped down. Uh, they, give, they give him a sedative, seemingly. Uh, so, so this scene was interesting because panic attacks are not the sort of thing where you completely flip out like that, where you would need restraints. Right. So... Uh, so that I th- was so th- I'll just say that the whole depiction of the panic attack, uh, you know, phenomenon or condition in Holden was both uh, accurately depicted in the way that uh, our industry, my industry back then, wasn't the way it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't know as much as they do today. Um, so in some ways, so. There was a lot of really just bad treatment of panic, right. is, is my statement. And I would say that part of that is because it's it's accurate to depict that in the past they would have treated panic in a very bad way, yeah. very ineffective way or very harsh way. Um, but I also think that they might have gone a little too far yeah. um, because it's just really common for uh, Hollywood to – depict mental health the way that they think it would yeah, look. Yeah, right. And the way that people think mental health looks is very dark and, yeah. you know, very harsh and upsetting, you know. For for me, uh, how, what, you know, based on my own experience of it, uh, The Sopranos did a great job depicting uh, the panic attack aspect because uh, for Tony, it would come in seemingly suddenly. Granted, you could see, oh, I see, that might have triggered him and stuff. But, in general, and it was recurring. It was, it, and it was right. fairly debilitating. But it was also not like, oh God, he's going into seizures. Oh, we got you know, like stuff like that. Um, what I thought in this case is, um, initially, I wasn't actually because at the end of the first season, I wasn't thinking, oh, he's got a panic attack. I literally just thought, uh, I, I guess I don't, I didn't have a label for it, but I, but I was thinking, you know, maybe uh, PTSD or something like you know, because it's such a stressful moment. Uh, but if it were, yeah, panic, yeah, the way they depicted it at the end of season one, it was like he had a psychotic break. Yeah, or exactly. Yeah, which I, again, I would not. I mean, I'd be like, yeah, you just went through like some serious, crazy stuff. But um, but then if it were a panic attack, I was expecting because based on my my own experience of it, uh, I had after the that first big one, I had probably like two months of recurring mini panic attacks and it took me a while to get to to be able to like feel them sense them and actually really like couple years of me learning how to okay that okay i'm getting okay okay i'm fine i'm fine and then like doing little like body things to like short circuit it body thing yeah like oh okay adjusting myself uh in a chair taking a deep breath or you know like just self-soothing like because it would 
come on and I would feel it I'm like oh right and it's like this yeah what what I think happened was the writers of season one they wanted to end the season on some really something dramatic yeah and they uh, I think they they really wanted to focus season one on on Holden yeah and his journey yeah the, the season one was all about Holden season two wasn't so much about Holden right but season one was all about Holden. I think they wanted to show that. I think the writers were sitting around and they 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 were thinking, okay, I we want Holden to be very focused on his work and trying to figure out the serial killers, and he's slowly losing his mind as he enters the world of serial killers. This right. is this is a trope, you know. You got to become one. To, you got, if yeah. you want to know one, you got to <laughs> you got to become one. You know? <laughs> And I think that they wanted to see Holden have a consequence, have some kind of suffering from all of his, you know, one track mindedness Mm -hmm. in season one. He wasn't a balanced character. Right. And I think that the writers wanted him to have some kind of break, some kind of mental episode. And they depicted something at the end. And I don't think they had a conceptualization of what it was. That could very well be. And then... In between season one and two, they're like, okay, well, now what do we write? And they're like, well, it'd be a pretty dumb show if Holden's in the hospital of all, for all of season two. Yeah. And so they they said, well, we're going to call it Panic, and we'll we'll pay some attention to it episode right. one and two, but then we'll just get and back. we'll drop it like a bad habit. Right. Then we'll just get back to you yeah. know, the regular kind of thing, because we don't want to have to deal with Holden freaking out all the time. Right. And we'll, we'll have this air of like, maybe it could happen, because it'll raise the tension around Holden when he's hanging out with right. serial killers, of like, is he going to have a panic attack? Um, but, <laughs> uh, but we don't really want that to be the focus, because that, yeah. that, that we just don't want to go in that direction. That's what I think happened, I, and I don't think they, that seems legit. I yeah. mean, like that's kind of how it played out for me, right? I, I didn't think about the fact that they probably didn't have a plan at the end, but uh, yeah, that that seems very likely. So in season one, we see the physician in the hospital. So first off, he's strapped down, which I thought was was a little interesting. Again, possible, not likely, but you know, I wasn't around. I wasn't in. I wasn't in the field in 1980, so who knows. Uh, the physician comes in and says, I could send you down the hall to look at ink blots, but in my opinion, you need to lower your stress. Again, uh, possibly accurate for the time. I, I could see a physician uh, saying that back then, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in certain areas of the country where psychoanalysis was the dominant form. But there were plenty of non... So ink blots is, especially back then, would have been mainly associated with like Jungian um, and sort of more arcane psychoanalytic uh, practices. Uh, I I actually am trained in uh, in Rorschach uh, inkblot. Yeah, I like the Watchmen, but what does that have to do? (laughs) Uh, Inkblot uh, analysis is there is a science to it, um, and there there is uh, empirical evidence of certain things you can draw from. Uh, what people see in uh, these ink plots. It's pretty limited, though, and there's much easier ways to get at that information. But anyway, but uh, there are a lot of other treatments for that, and I have a hard time believing that 
the physician hadn't heard of other things that were going on at the time, namely cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, REBT, et cetera. It could um, be more of him being just like kind of a dick, you know, like the, the physician. Yeah, yeah. Just like looking down on psychiatry even. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, wouldn't be unheard of. Yeah. Uh, they, he gives him uh, benzos, he gives him Valium and uh, Valium absolutely can help. So this was a good prescription by the physician. Uh, Valium uh, can help for sure. It, it, it can, one, absolutely just uh, take away one's anxiety in the moment. Uh, but it can also be kind of a security blanket for some people. It's mm. like, well, at least they know it's there. And then sometimes knowing that it's there will actually cause you not to have a panic attack. Oh, interesting. Um, or a placebo like that. It actually kind of happened when he has his second panic attack when he's being yelled at by his former boss. Yeah. And he has that panic attack, and he takes the pill, and it almost seems like right away he starts to feel better. There's no way a benzo, a benzo takes like half hour to kick in, or you know, 15 minutes at the very least. I see. And so but his mind might have been like, "Okay, you're fine." You're yeah, fine. I've got a benzo in yeah. my body. Everything's gonna be okay. Yeah. Um, he gets out of the hospital, and Tench, his partner, and the, and the FBI shames him. Uh, you know, it's a very common response, right? Even today, like um, anyway. Then Dr. Wendy uh, Carr, I believe her name is Carr, uh, she asks, she sits down with him at the bar and asks him a bunch of questions. And this scene really bugged me. I mean, one, because Dr. Wendy is not, I don't think she's a clinical psychologist. I think she's a research professor. Yeah, that's the impression we got. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the fact that uh, she would know what to do. I mean, I, I have uh, psychologist friends who don't know anything about clinical matters and yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't know the first thing about how to interview someone about panic attacks. So, uh, but again, I could see when, so bad behavior on Wendy's part, but uh, as is typical in movies and TV, but I could see it happening. Ask a bunch of questions. We find out that uh, uh, Holden, this was his first and only panic attack. He said he felt like he was having a heart attack. He couldn't breathe. He didn't pass out. He had tunnel vision, and he said it was triggered by his visit with Kemper. And um, Holden said, you know, he, 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 Wendy's like, well, you know, what do you mean? What did Kemper do? And Holden's like, he hugged me. And that's not an accurate depiction of what happened. Right. Now, we could see how a, a character like Hol Holden might not be aware of, like, how to describe something. And, he, yeah, he, he definitely is... I don't know if socially awkward is the right description, but he doesn't communicate properly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what happened was Kemper physically threatened Holden. Yeah. And again, as, as we're saying, it's not some random person physically threatening you. It's a multiple repeat murderer yeah. the size of a mountain yeah. threatening your life, knowing full well, you knowing full well that if he wants to, that's the end of your story. And he probably wants to. And he probably wants to. Right. And it's not unheard of. I mean, there are cases where convicted, in, you know, incarcerated killers will kill people uh, in situations like that. They'll, yeah. they'll get alone with someone. I mean, I could tell you this one story that this one guy told me that I, it, was, it was so gruesome that uh, I don't even want to say it. I mean, it was. But it happened something like that. It would happen in a situation like that, yeah. and man, I mean the the the, the whole st anyway. Yeah. So then she goes on. Um, Wendy says, "When we 
and so at this point she's like she seems very upset yeah which again is not unheard of but just terrible approach to someone with panic sure. when when someone has a panic attack you don't want to be like oh my god we have to be extremely vigilant right. <laughs> like that's the direct that's the opposite the direct you, you you need to tell people with panic to be like uh, you're fine right and tell yourself you're fine right nothing bad's gonna happen right. Which, which, by the way, because that, that was the first thing that started helping me is when I went to the doctor the next day and the doctor said, physically, you're, you're fine. Uh, I think you had a panic attack and I think you should see, you might want to consider seeing a therapist. And, and I was like, well, okay, so, so it's like not physical. She's like, well, yeah, I mean, it is physical, but it's not, it's not like you're, you're having a real heart attack or something. It, it, it's um it's you know triggered by something and you might and so when when i heard that i was like it already started down the road of helping me right. let alone when i started going to therapy and stuff uh which by the way the, the other thing that that is interesting is that i thought was not accurate but again this is just based on my experience so maybe that's not right but uh, what i mean is this when i had my first panic attack it wasn't because of something that I could directly point to in that moment. I was like, well, it's because, you know, like in the, at the time I was watching the second Harry Potter movie and I'm in the middle of the movie. I don't know what scene it was. I don't, it wasn't like, oh, it's when, it's when Hagrid yelled at Harry and said, you have no father. And then all of these memories started rushing. No, I'm just in the middle of the movie and all of a sudden I'm having a heart attack. Yeah. And yeah, I had no idea why or what. Yeah, that's common. And so now, piecing back the things, I was like, well, the night before I had heavily, I'd been heavily drinking and I had done some reckless things. And I, in that whole time period, I had been doing very reckless things with money and other things. So yeah, sure, I could piece together a story about probably what led me to that moment. But it was not at all like, well, the serial killer hugged me, right? That's why I also didn't think when I saw it in the first season that it was a panic attack. I, I literally just thought of like, gee, I mean, like a common reaction by any human to nearly dying. <laughs> right. It's a traumatic reaction. Yeah, a traumatic reaction. Yeah, a terror reaction. Yeah. Um, the second event where he was being yelled at by his former boss, then we could characterize that as potentially a panic attack. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I suffered from panic as well. And, uh, and the thing that helped me was when I learned about panic attacks. Yeah. Well, I went to graduate school and I was in my psychopathology class in my first or second quarter. And Ned Farley, a friend of mine now, uh, was talking about panic. And we got to that chapter in the DSM <laughs> and, and he read it and I, you know, we were reviewing it. And I was like, oh my God, that's what I have. <laughs> and, and like with and 99% of my uh, anxiety dis- disappeared yeah, in that moment yeah. because I... I the next time I had what I thought to be a panic attack, yeah, or the next time I had the precursors to a panic attack, I was like, "Well, it's just a panic attack, right? It's no big deal." Right, right, right. So, but Wendy says we have to emphasize. Uh, well, no, w- sorry. When we empathize with the psychopaths, we actually negate the self. Yeah. We deny our own beliefs about decency and humanity, and that can be very dangerous. Very dangerous. So again, <laughs> uh, very bad treatment. Uh, yeah. Not very. Not the thing you want to say in the midst of someone who is suffering from panic, and not really related. You know, and, and also that that's like 
That's like your opinion, man. Like that's you didn't like do hundreds of years of research to come to that conclusion, right? <laughs> I mean, to emphasize with psychopaths, you don't have to negate the self, right? So, uh, but again, I think the writers want that sort of element in there or yeah. something, and I could see someone saying that back then. Oh, sure. And the other thing that um, sadly, I actually had problems with the way they treated her character this whole season. Really? Well, yeah. We'll get to that in yeah, a bit. Okay. Um, and then, uh, and then she sort of finishes with uh, with, I can keep an eye out, but you are the only person who can feel something coming on. And then, and it's like okay. And then she just kind of leaves it at that. Like, Jeez. like uh, I'll keep an eye on it's you. Super scary and dangerous, and I'll keep an eye. But we're you're pretty much screwed. Yeah. He based <laughs> she basically made his panic disorder like a hundred times worse. <laughs> And that she, because she doesn't follow it up. She, she doesn't, yeah. she doesn't say, so I can give you a benzo right. or a back rub right. or some calming right, words. Right. She just, she, she just lays out this thing like it's extreme. And again, I think the the writers are thinking we want attention to yeah. be created around the possibility of him having a panic attack. Right. Like they're more concerned about what this could do to the unit. Right. You know, because like even that was uh, both him and uh, attention her. When they discuss it, it's like, well, we're going to have to kind of take turns watching him. Right. So you let know. me get to that. those quotes. So Wendy says during that conversation, panic attacks might not be brought on by anything real, but their effects are very real. This could have serious consequences for us and real physiological consequences for him. And it's like, uh, no <laughs> no, no, no. One, uh, yes, panic attacks might not be brought on by, quote, unquote, anything real. Uh, but the effects are actually not real. <laughs> that's that's the, the cornerstone of understanding panic is that it's brought on by something random. It feels like something is real, like yeah. you're going to die or you're going to go crazy or you're going to have a heart attack. But actually, you're not. Yeah. It is actually an illusion. It's your amygdala going crazy, convincing you of things that are that feel real but are not real. So Wendy is saying the direct opposite of the truths. Again, I could see a misguided psychologist saying something like this. Maybe. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it'd be t- so. I could understand. It's like, well, look, well, what if he has a panic attack while he's driving? Like that could be dangerous, right? Yeah. Or. Um, or just the more practical thing about the interview is like, well, you know, if he's got a panic attack in the interview, it's going to throw the interview off. But who cares? Like, right. so you, you're already like up a losing hill on these interviews because you, who knows what you're going to get from them. Yeah. You're telling me that it's more important to you that your colleague might throw an interview because he's suffering from a trauma. Come on. Yeah. And then she says it could have real physiological consequences for him. No, it can't. Again, if he's driving, yeah, or piloting a plane, or something. yeah, then I suppose. But they make they give this impression that it could break his brain. It's like you know when he's juggling those knives. What if he had a panic attack in the middle of that? Yeah. All right. Uh, let's take a break. When we get back, let's talk about Holden's diagnosis. Let's do it. So, Berto, if Charles Manson oh, were geez. to convince everyone to become a patron of the podcast, what would he say? Listen, man, 
What you gotta understand is that there's no podcast, okay? You think you're hearing voices from these little speakers you put on your head, but that's not even real. That's not even a thing. What you need to do is give away all that you got, because you're not keeping it. You're not holding on to it. So I want you to put a chair in the middle of the room, dump all your money, all your jewels, yell at them, insult them, and then give them away to psychology in Seattle. Because there isn't even a psychology in Seattle, man. <laughs> all right, Holden's diagnosis. So the internet says that Holden has autism is on the autism spectrum. What do you think about that? Oh, uh, yeah, he's a little Aspergy. Is that a really offensive term, by the way? Did, did I just offend the internet? No. Okay. Uh, Meaning, I have had coworkers and friends. Now that I, point, yeah, but I, if I'm thinking of this one coworker I had, who uh, I, I was always so puzzled by because my interactions were so awkward with that person all the time, and and it'd be like I try to like make a little joke, and it, it was like barely a reaction, and then and I just having a meeting it was like playing a poker game i'm like what's what's going on here and i get that sense from holden it's just like he doesn't really laugh at cues that other people are laughing at he just kind of keeps it all very straight and by the not even by the book just like stay on target stay on target no i just don't think he's the right suspect blah 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 well yeah so for people like you who don't understand autism i could see how you would think and i'm not saying autism I, i'm just saying what I've heard of as Asperger's, where Asperger's they don't is read, mild autism, okay, where they don't read like social cues the same way maybe a normal right. curved person, right? Does. And and again, I'm, I'm, this is not an insult. Sure. This is a, a statement of fact that you do not understand autism because it's extremely complicated. Sure. Most clinicians don't understand autism, uh, let alone lay people, and. Uh, and you have what I would say to be a, a common misunderstanding of autism that leads to overgeneralization and overapplication of the label to people and present in people in TV and movies that actually don't fit the uh, uh, the profile at all. But, Holden Holden is not autistic at all. Yeah, yeah. But but just to be clear, it's you people. That have done this to us because before I knew, like seriously, before I knew any of these terms, uh, I just thought, oh, that person's awkward. And then well, all of a sudden, around the mid two thousands, yeah, everyone started saying Asperger's this, Asperger's that. Oh, that person's got Asperger's. Yeah. That person's got Asperger's. I and I yeah. absolutely agree that that clinicians started to overapply it. Uh, and, and and by the way, and for me, like maybe I never made this hump over this hump because. I still walk around, which I'm sure is also a misunderstanding, but I still walk around with uh, an impression of autism as, well, no, that's like the really, like, in their head and might have some, uh, might have some special skills kind of person. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And I grew up with that, too. Yeah. I mean, Rain Man was my yeah. first exposure to autism. And first and only, I suppose, right. until I was, I don't know, 25 and actually started working with autistic people. The thing is, is you have to work with autistic people to really understand it. Or you have to have a loved one who is yeah. autistic. And autism is, uh, I mean, well, I'm not going to go into it. But anyway, Holden does not fit the criteria of someone even mildly autistic. I mean, you can make an argument, but... but 
if if you did, you would be basically saying that like twenty percent of the population is autistic, sure. and it's like, well, then it loses its 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 meaning. If that's if that's how you wanted to find it, right, right. Holden, you know. He functions fine. Yeah. He processes his world fine. Yep. He's just really anal and like really dedicated to his job. Oh, and, that's and he, actually fair. Yeah. And he's not particularly. Um, and he does actually. There's a scene with Wendy when he's talking in the bar, and uh, she says to him because you know she has this very intense look like you got to really make sure. You, and and he's you know he's handling it pretty well, and under the circumstances. And then she says like. And you know, if you if you need to talk to anyone, I can be here to listen. Yeah. And then he says, "Thank you, Wendy, because you know um, I, I've I've actually wanted to talk with someone about this sort of thing." And then Wendy instantly uh, starts staring at the bartenderess. Yeah. And because she has a crush on her, and then Holden looks up and notices that Wendy yeah. isn't even paying attention to him. Right. And right. he and you can see he has this little look like his feelings are hurt. Yeah. And so the fact that Holden you know, is a little stunted or a little distant at work is because people are distant. I mean, Tench treats him like shit. Yeah, yeah. So, All right, it, you've convinced me. And now that I think about it, the, the main thing I was reacting to is that uh, there are scenes where they purposely depict them as clueless. Yeah. And I don't know if that's consistent with those other scenes that you're pointing to. Because, the, uh, because a different way to interpret some of those scenes is like, no, I mean, he's aware. He just doesn't give a shit. Meaning, an example is like, when he's like, oh, no, no, the suspect is black. And, you know, everyone else, like, tension stuff, is like, dude, like, don't you understand? Can you read the situation? Yeah. And then one way to interpret it is like, no, he can't because he's slightly autistic. The other way to interpret it is like, oh, he can't. He just doesn't give a shit. He's, he's a little bit of a dick in that sense. Right. So <laughs> one could say that that was a, a yeah, he's like 0.1% on the <laughs> autism spectrum in that, he has a hard time navigating those yeah. waters that other FBI agents seem to pick up uh, right. without being told specifically. Uh, so you could make that argument for sure. But I just, I feel like, why can't we just say sure. that he just has a hard time picking up on things like you, that? You sold me on it, because actually, I, I have had coworkers that I think would fit your criteria a little better in that, uh, so like at the Star Tours, right, like some of them, they'll sit at their desk. I'll come up to them. To have a conversation about something we need to do or change. First of all, they can't make eye contact. They, they just can't. Like, I can't get them to look at me in the eyes, number one. Number two, uh, th from the beginning of the conversation, it feels like they want the, the conversation to come to an end. Like, they're not comfortable having a conversation. And um, the only time that I can... I think like make a little bit of a connection is if I just let them like if I ask about something that they're interested in and I sit there and listen and, and it can be a, uh, a rat hole because they can go on and on and on and on and on. So that type of personality I've run into a few people over the years like in my line of work and maybe it goes along with parks and recreations but it I don't know what the right label is but it's certainly it feels like it's difficulty reacting "Quote unquote," normally in social situations. Yeah, and Asperger's or you know mild autism spectrum uh, is a possibility. The yeah. thing is, is that autism is such a complicated, mm -hmm. pervasive issue that you would have to really know. And and the uh, people out there, because there are people out there who listen to the podcast 
who are on the autism spectrum. I know that, and because they've told me, and they will <laughs> the way they describe their discovery that they had mild autism was piecing together dozens mm. of experiences that repeat throughout their life. It wasn't just that they have a slight um, coldness in a meeting, right? <laughs> or they <laughs> are very logical, <laughs> or they don't like to follow society's rules. You know, like yeah. it, it would. It, there's there's a lot of frustrations that happen to autistic because autistic people are, uh, you know, they're not typical neurologically, and so th- they bump up against typicals. Yeah, and there's all these sort of culture clashes a lot of yeah. times, and throughout their life they're just like why is why am i always experiencing this and then uh so right. we just have to we'd have to know so much more about holden that <laughs> i just don't think they're presenting i think you're right i'm imagining this situation where you're in a team meeting at work or something and then afterwards you're like dude i think johnson's got serious autism oh how come well you remember when i told that joke like he barely laughed right it's, <laughs> it's essentially what people do now yeah which drives me crazy yeah. i'm just like how about it, he's just not very reactive or your or, joke was terrible or your joke was dumb <laughs> or, yeah he doesn't like you um another internet diagnosis was high functioning sociopath what do you think about that one huh no yeah i mean like there's zero evidence that he's not empathetic uh, unless we again unless we just mean that he didn't demonstrate empathy to the commissioner in that one room meeting with the thing and the stuff. But, I mean, clearly, he's, like, extremely invested in trying to figure out what's going on with these murders of these kids. He, And then, actually, that whole scene was really telling because when he first gets uh, approached by the when, – when he's checking into the hotel – he mistakenly thinks, oh, I think she's into me. Well, and then, she, I think, purposely was oh, trying. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and you're right. She she needed a way. But but I also, I wasn't sure how aware she was of the power she had of appearing that way. But maybe she was fully in control. I thought she was hitting on him. Well, yeah. So I think we all did. And definitely he did. Uh, which, what I don't know, again, it's because you know how sometimes it's like, us, us guys or certain types of us guys were like, oh, she looked at me. I think she's hitting me. So they might have been doing like a little bit of a halfway. Like, sure, she, she'll appear a little interested, but she didn't say anything like explicit, right? Like, anyways, the, the, my point though was uh, he's like, oh, okay, she's into me. But as soon as he realizes, oh, wait, no, there's something else going on. He seamlessly transitioned into that mode and then actually wanted to hear and try. And even though he was getting completely rejected by the other women, he was like, well, no, let me see if I can help. And right. and that none of that shows any traces of lack of empathy and or lack op- of uh, caring or anything. The opposite. Yeah. The only compelling factor in him doggedly pursuing yeah. this case of the Atlantic... Uh, the, the, Atlant- the Atlanta murders was because he cared. Yeah. Uh, he Absolutely. cared about those mothers. He cared about those kids. Right. Um, there were so many other cases he could have been doing. And he was doing himself no favors up the chain, so to speak, right. blah, blah, blah. And he also, because I, I really also think, like, it's not, you can't make a case that the guy's a narcissist. You know, it doesn't really seem like he's got any need for, like, well, but this will give me attention. 
he uh, is not manipulating the situation to his advantage. He's not manipulating those people. He's not lying to anyone. He's not doing any of these things. Right. He's not uh, dysfunctional. He's very competent and yeah. capable, organized, blah, blah. Like, no. Yeah. Forget it. It's just this really annoying, stupid thing in the movies and TV productions and in internet discussions around these characters that just drives me crazy. It's the Sherlock Holmes and House yeah, syndrome. Exactly. I was just, those yeah. two characters. House, Sherlock Holmes. They There's one, the writers, directors, actors like to depict this pseudo-psychopathy uh, uh, or pseudo-autism. And then the internet loves to attribute, oh, that's a psychopath, and that's a, that's functioning. That's a that's a you know a an autistic person, and they're both basically like feeding off each other. Yeah. The, the internet idiots are, uh, you know, influencing the writers because right. the writers want to appeal to them, and then you know, um, and by internet idiots, I'm talking about like eighty percent of people. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just it's just this weird phenomenon. So yeah, high functioning so, sociopath. One, stop saying sociopath because no clinical person or very few clinical people use the word sociopath. The internet loves to use that term. The media loves to use that term. I don't know where it came from. I mean, I kind of know where it came from because there's actually a history to the term. But uh, the technical terms are antisocial personality disorder or psychopathy. Psychopathy is a perfectly fine word, but for whatever, I actually, someone said to me, because I, I, I was asking this to, I think on the YouTube live thing, I'm not sure, like, why is everyone saying sociopath? And someone emailed and they said, well, because psychopath sounds harsh. Like the word psycho, psychopathy, it sounds very harsh, like they're, they're going to be a psychopathic killer or something, which isn't true. Uh, but, and they said sociopath sounds softer. I also think there was something in the 80s where this was getting permeated from some source because, uh, look, remember, I grew up in a household with a psychiatrist, right? So you would have thought I would have had these terms like very delineated. But I distinctly remember having conversations about, well, you know, there's, and he had the DSM and he would show me and stuff. And clearly, like, the terms that were there were there and the ones that weren't there. But I still remember thinking that I had an understanding of, uh, okay, a, a, a psychotic has these psychotic breaks with things, visions that he sees that are not really there. Things like that. That's true. A psychopath is like someone who really doesn't have these feelings and he'll just kill people, blah, blah, blah. Then a sociopath is sort of like that, but they're not really killers, but they're definitely going to try to take an advantage on society. And they're sort of like anti antisocial personality. I remember these things. Now, yeah. of course, I was young. Maybe I'm misremembering. And that could have been but, told to you, but that's actually false. Uh, back, uh, It's complicated. We're talking about humans using words. Right, right. And, so, and so what I'm trying to say is, like, it seems like at some point, from whatever sources, these things started getting out there in the mainstream. Right. And, well, and I remember it in the 80s. And so I, I remember being in high school and in college and feeling like, oh, yeah, that's a fact. These are facts. Yeah. A sociopath is this, a psychopath is this, a psychotic is this. Yeah, and, and if we want to define it that way, that's fine. Sure. But, but that isn't how we define it <laughs> right, in right, the right. field. Right. In the field, we uh, uh, it's clear in the literature that sociopathy and psychopathy are essentially defined in the same way. And right. um, there were some delineations in the past. And it's funny because I always get these comments from like non-clinicians, non-research psychologists on the Internet saying, well, sociopathy is this. And I'm right. just like, 
where did you get that? Where, you know? Which, to your point, like, so fine, let's just make up a, a non-clinical term for something but, that we want to describe. But we don't need it, is the thing. <laughs> like, psychopathy, as we define it, is perfectly fine. Sure. There are spectrums. Right, There's right, a spectrum right. of psychopathy. There's different presentations. The vast, vast majority of psychopaths don't kill anybody. So, because most people don't kill right. people. So, uh, and and you have psychotic, and, and which is actually a break from reality right. and delusional. And psychopath sounds like psychotic, but we understand that it's not the right. same word. So, would you say like, because now based on all the understanding I've had through the years we've been doing this and things like that, to me, a Tony Soprano is someone we could have a conversation about psychopathy. Yeah. Because, you know, he is dysfunctional, even though he runs a thing. So he's very dysfunctional. He is, he's got a very, you know, he's compulsive, impulsive. He is uh, clearly okay with people suffering, like lies for a living, constantly, all these things. Uh, but Holden, none of this, none no. of this. So I think we can conclusively say, no, yeah. get it out of here. Let's go into another psychological topic, sexual sadism, So, which is different than psychopathy. And I want people to understand that. Like, being a psychopath, um, in essence, means that you don't necessarily care about other people the way that most people do. It means that you can care a little bit about yeah. other people, but it means that you don't care as much. It also means that you, when other people are suffering, it doesn't affect you right. the way that it would affect, affect other people. If someone is crying or they're in pain or they're sad, uh, to a psychopathic person, it's just, it just affects them less. It's not necessarily that the psychopath likes it because so, that's a different thing. That's what we call sadism. Yeah. When, when someone likes someone else suffering and they try to make other people suffer... That's sadism. Psycho and you can have combinations of and you, you can yeah. you can be a psychopathic sadist, yeah. and you can be a psychopathic sexual sadist. Um, there's various different roads to rape and sexual assault and 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 rape murders. Uh, one can be just the desire for power. Another can be that you actually get your rocks off by actually doing such a thing, and that's called sexual sadism. Uh, and in this show, I feel like. I don't know. I feel like I finally understand sexual sadism for the first time in my life because of what something that they wrote in for Ed Kemper to say. Mm. Um, and I know this sounds like extreme it, to, to people out there, maybe to you and Berto, it might be kind of like, well, no, duh. But and I and I'm and I'm sure this crossed my mind before, but it, I don't think it ever really sunk in. Which one was it? Well, he, he says that it's all about dominance. Mm. And he explains it a little bit, but somehow, like, it all, it was this aha moment for me. And here's here's my uh, conceptualization of it. So we have an instinct, I'll, I'll just say, I'll, I'll, I'll hypothesize, mm -hmm. for dominance. Uh, we, uh, not necessarily, like, dominant dominance, but we have we have an instinct for power slash dominance. We want to feel like we're powerful. You play with a young kid. I, I always look to young kids because they're they're more pure than adults are, and they they more they act on instinct more than adults do, right? So a one year old child will get off on dominance and power. Now we sure. don't we don't frame <laughs> it that way, but the the one year old wants to throw the ball and or wants to knock their cereal off of the uh, the table, right? 
or wants to scream as loud as they can and make everyone in the room look at them. Yeah. Like kids love that power. And whenever they can get it, they try to assert it because it's it, it gets people off. It motivates. Right. It's like, I know I'm not supposed to push these blocks off the table, but I can't I can't resist it. Right. It's they they magically end up back on the table anyway. Yeah. So this is gonna be fun. It's gonna make a big noise yeah. and yes. And I'm a master of my domain. <laughs> I'm a master of my or with other human beings, like I I might be able to uh, grab their hair and yank the kid, or there could be a kid next to me, and I might push them down. Right now, to a infant or a toddler, you just look at it as cute play. But when you look at it in a more uh, scientific way or in a, through a certain lens, it's a it's a human being getting off, getting right. pleasure from dominating their world and other human beings. Um, even other things like once they get a little older, they're, they're like three years old and you're playing like a boxing match or something mm-hmm. and, you know, she punches you in the face and it's very light and you go, oh, and you fall over and the kid and, you know, the three-year-old's like giddy. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, my right. God, daddy, get up. It's fine. Absolutely. And uh, losing is very difficult for a child. Right. You know, it's like, why? wait, why am I not? the number one winner on every situation. Right. So three-year-olds are walking psychopaths. Yeah. You know, walking sadists on yeah. some level. But over time, through our interaction with, uh, you know, healthy parenting and healthy environment, we, uh, as Freud said, we develop a superego and our ability to uh, modulate that impulse. Mm-hmm. We have an impulse to dominance. We have an impulse to... Uh, to harm other people at times, to assert that power. But, you know, we, we learn like, well, you can't do it that way. You can't, you have to assert your dominance in other kinds of ways. Like, um, you try to do really good at your job. You're, right. you're, you're dominant over your uh, job. In, in, in some general way, it's like you learn that there are rules and that you can actually be dominant if you try hard enough within those rules, uh, but that in general you probably should stay within the rules because otherwise it's it's not right. It's not good. It's not good for you. It's not good for society, things like that. Right. There's balance. Yeah. You and I talking right now, there's two people talking. Each of us are uh, want to dominate the conversation. No, I, I want to. <laughs> Um, but we also understand that that wouldn't make good content and wouldn't make for a good friendship and wouldn't feel good in the end. But there's an impulse in us right. to like, I want this to be all about me. You know what I mean? Now, sexual sadism, uh, we develop later in life when we start to, uh, uh, or sexual dominance, I should say, we develop later in life. And a lot of people have this. Uh, I would venture to say everyone has some version of sexual dominance mm. that they that that gets them off whether they actually express it or not is dependent on their life but you know from from more obvious things like bdsm or spanking or something but even just like um sweaty vanilla sex like ooh, that sounds <laughs> <laughs> like you know making your partner orgasm sure is a dominance that most people enjoy Mm-hmm. Now, you might not frame it as dominance, but 
<clears throat> but it is a, a form of dominance. You're 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 making someone else do something, right? And you you uh, are in control, right? That that sense of control. Now you might not consciously be like, "Ooh, I'm in control," but you are. And a lot of and a lot of people will explicitly talk about that. You know, they'll be like, "I I like being in the driver's seat," you know, and I like making that my partner have an orgasm, right, 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 um, or writing your partner. You know that that idea of dominance and you know regardless of gender it's like i'm riding on top and there's a lot of language in our culture uh that's not technically violent but it is about dominance right things like oh i'm gonna do such and such so hard or like oh you know and like there are terms that actually if you took them literally are extreme like ridiculously sexually sadistic like i'm gonna f your brains out kind of thing you know like right things like that <clears throat> that's i mean what is that like right you're literally gonna do this like right yeah when people are trying <laughs> to be hot talk right they don't say i want to very softly lay down with you and have some <laughs> sensual pleasure no one does that they, they, they're like i'm gonna take my c and i'm gonna put it in your p <laughs> <laughs> wait because i i'm usually like uh, I will put my hands along some of your skin and it will be a motion that I make that you will feel. <laughs> yeah. Or talking dirty, you know, like, like take it, suck it, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. or even right. play like you're, you're, you're getting me a little worked up here. <laughs> you're a dirty slut, you know, or, 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 or is this still the podcast or, or you know, people saying like. Uh, you know, I'm so hard for you, or you're, or I'm so wet for you. you yeah, know? Or like you know, pull my hair. Or when people are like, uh, you know, bash that guitar on my head, and like you know, and then you're like, hey, throw me over the cliff, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> over the cliff, uh, you know, make me watch bad movies. <laughs> um, so, so this when you when people really reflect on it. Now, some people are like, oh yeah, I'm all about the spanking and the sure. BDSM, but other people are like, no, I'm not into BDSM. But again. If people out there, if you really think about it, I'm I'm positive there are things that you've engaged right. in or, or would like to engage in. Well, well, even even if they're even if they're into BDSM, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's there's ranges, but you know, I have met people that are generally into it. But the, it's like there are there are still rules. There's still they don't end up in the hospital. There there's there are uh, constraints. You know, it's like sure, you know, you can you know you can slap my ass you know all day long if you'd like, but at the same time, I want my limbs intact. I want my yeah. my eyesight. You know. Yeah. So it's it, this is the act of sexually sadistic behavior. You're taking pleasure in dominance or even harming other people, but it's within a healthy consensual yeah. relationship, and people really like that. It feels good not only to to be the dominant, but also to be dominated, and uh, so. It seems like we have a instinct for dominance right. in general. We have also an instinct for dominance in sex. Mm-hmm. And when something goes wrong in your development, physiologically, neurologically, environmentally, developmentally, um, then it's it's a slight change. You know, one dial is just is just ratcheted up a little bit. Another dial is ratcheted hmm. down a little right. bit. And now you have someone who gets off on raping people. Right. Now, again, just to bring it back to normalcy, something like half of human beings, more men, more women than men, fantasize about rape, mm-hmm. uh, either raping or being raped. And 
so clearly it, it's normal to fantasize about, about dominating about dominating or right. about being dominated it's uh, t- like look i i actually when, I, when i'm having sex i like the partner to call me tenille because captain yeah so I, I can call him captain <laughs> <laughs> that was a long <laughs> long climb for a short fall um so uh so it, it's a it, for, you know, but in our society, we're just like, well, there's all the normal people yeah. who don't rape and everyone's fine. And, 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 you know, we don't, we have regular sex. Everything's normal uh, without any dominance play, you know, because that's freaky shit. And then there's this vast chasm between that normalcy and people who right. actually get pleasure from har- actually harming other people. It's, and, it's telling that our number one common position is called missionary style. <laughs> Think of the horror of the naming. Like, that's just so bad. Yeah, I never thought about that. It, 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 c- colonial style, they should call yeah. it. Um, <laughs> imperialist style. Uh, how's your father style? I mean, like, what the heck, right? Yeah. Like, uh, So, so there's uh, things get ratcheted up a little bit. Things get ratcheted down a little bit on your personality. And now you actually get off on people actually suffering non-consensually again people fantasize about non-consensual uh sex as well and so uh uh, it's a it's a variation on a normal expression of of human sexuality uh that uh, gets changed just slightly and I don't know why hold or uh, Kemper's statement that it's all about dominance, sexual because it was such a foreign thing to me. Because I, I really just, it's like, how could someone do that to another human being? Like, right. what, what would possess someone to do it and then actually like it? Like, it's the direct opposite of what um, I would think people would be yeah. turned on by. And when I somehow, when Kemper said that, it all came crystal clear to me. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's fascinating. And I kind of, I'm sitting there thinking about how, for me, my my experience uh, was of being dominated when I was five. You know, I, I've talked about in the podcast before, uh, I had some, I experienced some sexual abuse when I was five and, uh, and, and I was not in control. I was not dominant. It was, it was, my babysitter was dominant, you know. Um, so, in my adult life, the... The two things that occurred to me. One is the thought of me having sex while someone is asking me to stop or crying is not only unappealing, it's 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 physically impossible for me to imagine being turned on. Like I couldn't physically perform in those conditions. Number one. Number two, but I kinda go maybe a little on the other extreme, which is that uh a lot of times I've subsumed my own uh, my own desire or pleasure because I might slip into that role of like, oh yeah, right, I'm just here for the other person because that was my first encounter with it, right? So it's, I think you mean assumed that role. Uh, right? I, I subsumed as in I drop into oh, okay. that. But but honestly, it, so I think that makes it, I don't know, triply or tenfoldly as hard for me to relate to wanting the feeling of painful traumatic dominance over yeah, someone right it's it's bizarre right yeah. but when we see the healthy side uh, we, under, we understand it like right. uh, most of us can understand the impulse to 
want to harm another human being. Like when someone cuts you off in the freeway. Right. Most people have had an impulse to yell at them, to flip them off, to maybe even, you know, ram their car. Like there's an impulse there. Uh, Someone dumps you after 10 years in a very harsh way. It's not abnormal to have an impulse or a fantasy or an intrusive thought of, I'm going to burn their house down, or I'm going to slash their tires, or I'm going to run them over with a car. You know, we have those thoughts that pop into our head. Or lick their peanut butter or something. Or a politician that really bothers you. And you're just like, um, if there was a way that we could get rid of that person, or I hope hope they have a heart attack and die. Right, right, right. So it's not... It's not unusual to have those kinds of thoughts, but and, and most of us either hide them or we're just like, well, you know, that's normal. But it shouldn't be that hard to imagine the leap between oh, that yeah. and actually doing it. There, we shouldn't Absolutely. we shouldn't look at these people as like this aberrant, and that that's that's why I will often debate with you about this because you know you you want to categorize these killers like the mass killers of today or, you know, other people that we can look at as being, there's something diagnosable about, there must be something wrong with these people. And what I'm saying is that there's a, there's a, there's a leap, but it's not as far as we commonly talk about it between normal fantasy and impulse and normal uh, aggression and the aggression that we see and the sorts of horrific kinds of behaviors. That so I, I totally don't disagree with you that, that these are in matter of miles, but I would argue that all of our humanity, all of our experience is a matter of inches, meaning the difference between you and a top-tier Olympic athlete in human terms is huge in that sense, but like you're almost the same exact pile of mass. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Why do you have to use the word pile? <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't you? Beautiful sculpture of mess. Um, I mean, you're looking was, at me from across. <laughs> Sorry. You're, you're a pile of mess. You're a pile of mess. Well, I'll use myself. Like, uh, you know, what separates me from a successful Hollywood actor? Like, I'm better looking. I'm more charming. I'm a better actor. I have done more movies. I am uh, more w- rich and wealthy and famous than them. So why am I doing <laughs> Just kidding. But like the point is that it is, it is really only a little tweak here or there that separates most humans from other humans. Yeah. And so I agree with you. And, and that's, a, that's a good analogy. Yeah. The difference, be- not, not me and Brad Pitt, but say Brad Pitt and someone who's very good looking and is also a good actor. Right. And has abs. Right. And uh, what's the difference between those two people right. and, and the thousands of others right, right. of Brad Pitt like people like out me there. like yeah. all of us <laughs> that could have had um, <laughs> I just had a what, what are you laughing about I just had a vision of um, your abs being somewhere else on your body or something oh uh, <laughs> my abs being wait what <laughs> you're a pile of ass <laughs> oh, a pile of mass. Um, the uh, uh, my ass abs <laughs> <laughs> By the way, just a total side note, because I'm, um, I'm thinking of a pile of mass. Um, remember Chet from Weird Science? Yeah. Oh, yeah. A pile of mass. So, so uh, side note, we have a new vice president at my university, and his name's Chet. Oh, okay. And um, I was at a staff meeting with all the faculty, and 
I said, I said, yeah, I can't, I can't get over the fact that every time I hear that vice president's name, I think of Chet from Weird Science, yeah. uh, Bill Paxton's character, and like everyone is like, huh? Oh and, no, no one knows what you're talking about because they're all young. Now. Oh, all the professors are they're young compared to me, right? Like I used to be. Yep, I, I was I was in my 30s and everyone was in their 60s. So if I brought up Chet then, yep. they wouldn't have known it. And now I'm oh, I'm 48. And everyone is in their twenties and thirties, and and oh, so God. and not a single person knew what I was talking about. One person, oh, one no. person's, <laughs> I think, I think one person's generally my my age. And I said, you know, come on, Jill, like, surely you know what I'm talking about. She's like, I, I've never seen Weird Science. Oh no, I'm like, how have you never seen Weird Science? Oh no, <laughs> no, I mean, this happens to me all the time now. It is super sad. I'll be at work. We just got done with a, a, a set of people, just took the ride and stuff. And I make a joke and I make a reference. And like the other day, I, I was making a reference to the Brady Bunch. Silence of the Lambs. Like, I'm like, what do you, no one knows what I'm talking about? What is that? Well, no, the Brady Bunch, like, you didn't grow up watching the, no, I've never heard of the Brady Bunch. Or when they do references, uh, now we're just, you know, old man. Old man. Shakes, shakes, my lawn. shakes fist at millennial <laughs> clouds is they'll have a reference like Saved by the Bell or, um, you know, like Fresh Prince. Like maybe you're of that generation, but I I was too old to watch. I do know those those references. OK, so I, maybe I'm talking. But, maybe but I'm they not might do about, like an iCarly reference. OK. Are you aware of iCarly? Or, yeah. H- Hannah Montana or, or something. something. Yeah. Yeah. And uh yeah, like Reddit and the internet is mostly younger people yeah. than us, and the references that they make sometimes, I'm just yeah, like, dude, it's tough. Wah, wah. <laughs> um, so the show gives two impressions, Mindhunter. One that Holden and the team are figuring out who these people are. Yeah, right. that's their whole purpose, right? And they seem to be like developing conceptualizations. In this season, they seem to be talking explicitly about like, okay, this is a blitz killer. This is an organized killer. This is someone who's out to get attention. This is a sexual sadist. This is someone who just acts because they want a revenge. You know, there's different. They kind of talk about that a little bit. So they give the impression that uh, these people who are studying this are actually figuring out yep. wh- who these people are and, and what makes them tick. The other impression that they give on the show is that they have no idea who these people are. <laughs> and they're they're just throwing darts at a wall in the dark. Right. And that whenever they figure out quote unquote figure out uh what makes these people tick they find an exception yeah. and then they find another exception and then they keep finding all these other because in the in season two you had that african-american guy right who has a who i think has a low iq right and doesn't really know why he's doing he just right. seemed like he was just kind of like i don't does know. not fit the profile yeah and then you had the the but uh, to be sorry but to be fair it did feed it did feed fit many of Holden's profile intuitions. Of what? Uh, that he was going to be a black guy. Well, not only that, it was, first of all, he was right that it was one person. And and for well, us no, I'm watching talking the, about I'm talking about the other black guy uh, that was actually in prison. Oh, oh, okay, 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 okay. When he was talking, they were talking uh, with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I remember what you're talking about. And he's just sorry, like, so he, yeah. they're like, you know, why yeah. did you do that? And he's just like, yeah. I don't yeah. know, she was a local girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they talked to the racist white guy who also had a low IQ. I actually looked him up, and he had a low IQ of about uh, 70, which is like Forrest Gump IQ level. And they... Um, uh, the guy that was like, 
um, that was like, I'm smart, you yeah. know, like that guy. Yeah. I can sp- I can speak. Six, I can like, I can spell and speak and yeah. <laughs> and so with him, it was like, well, why was he killing? You know, and then the son of Sam, and then the Charles Manson. Like they're really different, and so either the writers are doing what I wish they would do, which is to show that it's really hard to conceptualize this broad range of individuals and thus really hard to prevent these things from happening because there's too many profiles and they're not specific enough. You know what I mean? Right. And this gets to, um, this gets to some of what annoyed me about the, the psychiatrist character. Uh, is she a psychiatrist? No, the psychologist, the psychologist character, because I was hoping we were going to see more of her developing her field in the process. Meaning scenes with her explaining, okay, I've, I've looked at the latest interviews and the latest evidence. And I, I think there is now these new realizations, like these patterns. And so I, I, before we thought there were three groupings, there's five groupings now and stuff like that. Like a Ted talk, like a Ted talk. Like yeah. she's as, as much as, uh, Holden is developing his kind of FBI intuition and 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 police tactics along with, along with trench and stuff like that she's developing the field of psychology around this stuff and unfortunately they spent the whole season with her relationship and and fine and then oh she's a lesbian and that's difficult well, we'll so, get to that in a second yeah so actually let's go to that now okay so season two highlights marginalization quite a bit yeah uh much more so than season one did uh, uh homophobia being gay, being lesbian, is something that is portrayed in this show. Uh, Wendy, the doctor, she's gay. She's closeted. And I thought, well, what what did you think about that whole thing? Well, as far as from that angle, I, I thought it was an interesting path. You know, they, they certainly did a good job showing how difficult it would be, how accosted she would be by males, just not even having a thought that she might not be into them and stuff like that. How uh, how it would be incredibly awkward for her to, you know, present herself professionally and at the same time say that he was she was a lesbian. Uh, the the super awkward thing where she uses the confession of, of of that she is a lesbian as part of the interview, but then has to pretend that of course she just was making it up. And all of that I thought was was great. Uh, the little dynamics between her saying, you know, not wanting to admit that she wants the person to move in, all that stuff. I thought that was all great. I just felt like that's not the show I came to watch. Mm. And so I'm like, well, that's great. That's an interesting show about the 70s and lesbians. But where's the psychologist? Mm. And in a way, I, I hate to say it, but in a way I'm like, oh, I see. Okay. Just like her superiors, the writers have also relegated the female to a specific role in this show she's there to be the female and also another token uh gay character Mm. but not really to contribute to the meat of the of the matter except for that one interview where she did good and only by the way only because she was a lesbian yeah it's interesting sorry to be dumping no i get it um body mass i could see that (laughs) i could i could see that as a viable criticism it it you know it aligns with some very uh, terrible movements in our society today yeah 
like the anti Star Wars people who are like, uh, oh, you know, yeah. you got to have a woman and you got to right. make the men weak and the women always have to be right and the black people always have to be right. Like, uh, it, 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 it's a very uh, silly argument that is made often. And you're essentially aligning, not aligning with that. You're, um, uh, coincidentally aligning with that point of view because um, I don't think that's where you come from. But, but I'm I- saying sort of the opposite because if they, if I were going, if the folks that complain about the Star Wars movies, I would feel like they'd be okay with this because they're like, oh yeah, okay, well a little a little side reference to this stuff is fine. But no, what I, I, I would want, imagine they wouldn't like it because well, of, maybe. Of, of what you said. It's just like I came to Mind Hunter for Mind Hunter, not to watch lesbians well fall. but i want her to be i want her like i would be much happier if she was instrumental to figuring this this stuff out to a developing her field to be an amazing psychologist to contribute all these things now i realized that at the time she would have been blocked for real and they tried to depict that with the the head of the fbi going like or whatever the unit going you know stick to your, why don't you stick to your psychology stuff but So I'm not saying, like, I'm not saying don't make her a lesbian. I'm just saying show me more of why she's on the unit. Like, don't just show me her personal life. Like, at least with Trench, they balanced it with, like, he's got this horrific thing happening at home. But he's also out in the field, and we're seeing all his contributions. Well, and the story of Tench's uh, uh, home life is a carryover from season one in terms of the the you know relationship troubles and him always being out of town right. working a lot and his son is developing into what looks like to be a little psychopath yeah um but anyway yeah so i could see that i i was um i thought that depiction was interesting and i imagine for uh people who want that kind of storyline in general I, i'm guessing that it was it was it was a, a welcomed addition to the show um, but yeah, I could see the point where it's just like, you know, Mindhunter, it's it's not really about a love story between different people. But you could argue that they're trying to string these out for however many seasons. And sure. they want to have, they wanted to give Wendy some home life, I think. You know, because with Holden, we're like, well, he doesn't have a home life. With uh, Tench, he, we've depicted his home life. Well, what about Wendy's home life? And And what Wendy's home life would be would be difficult because of homophobia and heterosexism and and i and i'm okay with that but show me her work life too yeah no i agree i would i would have loved a scene like that like that didn't even occur to me until you just said that where uh wendy hits the books and she starts to uh talk with maybe some of her mentors or something who uh, talk about personality and about motivation and about uh, uh, conceptualizing behavior in general, and then she, you know she starts to piece things together, and she maps everything out on a whiteboard, and she's like, "Okay, we have these people, and uh, the you know primary motivation is this, and for these people, but there's a there's a there's a Venn diagram that sort of overlaps everything, where it's like everyone is trying to." Uh, they're all angry or so, you know yeah. some kind of thing that would bring it all together. and maybe they're headed towards that maybe maybe if they did that season two they'd kind of blow their wad could be and, and I, I mean the other thing is you could have a, a much more interesting uh, struggle between Wendy and Holden in that vein meaning instead of the whole like uh, panic attack worry imagine if 
imagine if she does start doing that. And then that causes some tension because some of her insights don't exactly align with some of Holden's intuitions. And Holden's character arc is learning that he's got to balance his intuitions with data, right? Like, that would be interesting, something along those lines, right? But anyways, and yeah, maybe hopefully they do more of it in, in season three. So... Uh, I just kind of go over some of my notes, then let's get to uh, what we liked and disliked about the show overall. So um, also within the uh, homophobia uh, theme, they had the interview with Elmer, uh, Elmer Henley in prison, who was the assistant to Dean Coral, who murdered 28, at least 28 teenage boys and young men between 1970 and 1973 in Houston, Texas. So you remember Elmer Henley? Yeah. Uh, so he, uh, Elmer had killed Dean Coral, uh, the the ringleader of this killing, uh, uh, I don't know, compatriot yeah, yeah. <laughs> situation. Um, uh, and uh, the reason why Elmer killed him was because Dean, the, the leader, was going to kill El- Elmer's friends. He was going to rape and kill El- Elmer's friends. And uh, and Elmer was like, and and his friends were like, uh, "You're not going to let him rape and kill us, are you?" Kind of a thing. Right. And then Elmer was like, "Okay." And then he he shot him. Uh, he's still in prison, by the way. He's 63. Interviewed on the show, and he on the show he adamantly denies being a faggot, quote unquote. Right. right? And uh, uh, young people today might not really be able to understand how how uh, important it was for people to not be quote unquote faggots back then. I mean, right. it's, it's certainly something now, uh, but my God, in 1980, it oh, was, yeah. it was a death sentence or something, you know? Um, and then, uh, let's see during the FBI meeting about the helper, the square agent basically says that gay people are prone to violence. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and Wendy says that homosexuality is relevant as it pertains to victim choice, but it's not, it's not causal to violence. And then the square agent says, homosexuality is a deviance. <laughs> and then Wendy says, actually, it's been removed from the DSM as a disorder, and it's been changed to a sexual orientation disturbance. I mean, what an awful time. Yeah. <laughs> what an awful time that it was recently a disorder. Right. And probably still considered that to be that way right. by many people. And, and but even if, but it, it was technically a sexual orientation disturbance. Right. Um, this was not that long ago, people. Oh, again, growing up in the 80s with the DSM, I think my dad would have had the three at the time. Uh, so I don't know if that was the version that already had it removed or not. But I mean, my my dad absolutely made it sound like that was not not okay. Yeah, I mean, in, in my <laughs> tenure as a professor, I have had conversations with other professors, uh, people who... People looked up to professors that were worshipped, uh, professors who, um, I'm thinking of one professor in particular, who was highly worshipped and considered to be one of the most woke professors that ever existed. He told me one time, uh, very adamantly, that trans people are just confused. Mm -hmm. And I remember just being like, whoa, like... What he is like? Yeah, it's, you know, trans people—they're just confused, and they're just going through a phase or something like a phase. that. Phase, so, something like that. And I was like, "Whoa!" You know. So the uh, 
the notions uh, can be held by, you know, people that should know better. Anyway, so yeah. racism is another thing that they get into in season two. And uh, mainly around the Atlanta child murders yeah. committed allegedly or convictingly by Wayne Williams from 1979 to 1981. So it, it's, it's, it is within the span of this season. And at least 28 people in the Atlantic in the Atlanta area were killed, mostly poor black boys. Um, in the show and in real life, many of the families felt ignored by the police. Uh, you know, racism is bad now, but my God, in Atlanta in oh, yeah. 1980, it wasn't that long after Jim Crow. It was just yeah. 12 or 14 years after Jim Crow had been made illegal. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, there were uh, all those mothers depicted in the show grew up in a Jim Crow South where they had to use the colored bathroom and the, the, they had to sit in the colored section of a movie theater and all that kind of stuff. By the way, this thing, uh, really, really grinds my gripes of wrath. Uh, you know, a lot of people that are right now in the, in the older generation, they, they, um, I hear them talking about the, the glory days of the fifties, you know, and this is ironic to me from two angles. One is, of course, it was glory days for them because they were in in white suburbia, you know. But number two, at the same time that they have no problem reminiscing from 70 years ago and going, yeah, 70 years ago, it was so great. And how come we can't have it like that? They can't understand why someone might have horrible memories from 10, 20 30 years ago, 40 years ago, let alone, and including 50, they can't get it. Like, they can remember 70 years ago being like, oh, it's so great. Why can't we have it like that? But they can't understand why someone might still be a little salty that they or their mom or their grandma or their grandpa or someone they know had some horrible, traumatic, terrible, societally inflicted yeah, Crime I mean, against the, the thing that I w- always think about when I think about this so that I can empathize with other people and their experience is the older I get, the more angry I get about the fact that the American government locked up my family during World War II. Mm. Uh, when I was a kid, I knew about it for sure, but I felt like it was so long ago and my right. rel- my relatives certainly weren't talking about it very much. But the older I get, I'm just like, it's fucking bullshit, you know? Right. And I knew these people. They locked up people that I knew right. and were nice people. Uh, people fall, that followed the law. People who paid their taxes. People born in the United States. People born to people who were born in the United States. Uh, locked up arbitrarily because of race. And imprisoned because of race. Uh, and, you know, again... If my relatives were mean, <laughs> if my relatives, it would still wouldn't be okay, but it would it would sting less. These my Japanese people in my family are some of the nicest, most right. law abiding, church going, uh, you know, kind giving. Like you're quite possibly the most horrible member of your family. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, to to uh, grandmas. Yeah, you know, sixty five year old, my sixty five year old great grandma. Uh, my 65-year-old great-grandfather who was frail and old and all and he he barely spoke English. He was born, you know, in, in Japan. And uh, he worked at, he, he dedicated all of his free time to helping 
the garden at, at a new church that he was a part of. Yeah. And uh, was selfless and never complained and locked him up. Yeah. Without any questions. And white people just fucking let it happen and they signed the bills and they yeah. they did shit. And it's just like, uh, yeah, you think I'm a little salty about that? Yeah. Uh, Get it, over it, man. It's now, in the past. So imagine, you know, all of my relatives right. <laughs> being right. enslaved and killed and beaten and whipped and lynched and treated like shit and made to, you know, drink out of other fountains and not allowed in your schools and uh, oppressed in, in very systematic ways, signed bills and uh, all the other white people looking the other way. Like, yeah, I think I think it makes sense to be a little salty. Anyway, yeah. so they show that the police in Atlanta, the white police, uh, they go to them. The FBI goes to them. It's like, you know, I think there's a connection here. And the white police officers are like, well, you know, I'll... So tell me what you think about this depiction. Because on one level, the, the police are like uh, bringing the logical kind of um, argument against that of just like, there's no MO. Sometimes they're strangled. Sometimes they're shot. Uh, sometimes they're dumped over here. Yeah. And sometimes they're... Uh, not some, you know, and they a lot. There's murders that happen. We're a large city. Yeah. It's, it's Atlanta. A lot of people get murdered all the time, and sometimes they're kids. Uh, just because they're kids, right, doesn't mean that there's a connection, right, which, right. which is a logical thing to say, actually. Because yeah. in you know uh, Seattle, there's probably been uh, you know a, a dozen unsolved murders in the past like, few months. Yeah, just because they're unsolved doesn't mean that they're done by the same person. Um, And so, and it doesn't fit the profile of a serial killer because it doesn't have those telltale signs of, of a modus operandi. So the, uh, so the cop is saying that. And then the cop also says, um, I get, you know, that these women are upset. You know, I care about them. You know, this is a white cop saying, I care about the African American community and, you know, they've been treated like crap because this is, this is Atlanta. Um, so I get why they distrust us, but I have to say, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what's going on. So yeah. in other words, they very sympathetically portray the white cops as, uh, being logical and caring and compassionate. Uh, but at the same time, drawing a conclusion that was believed to be somewhat natural. Uh, what'd you think about that depiction? Uh, well, so I don't know how accurate it is, but I, I actually, I, I did think that the show did very well in being very nuanced because, uh, you know, you could imagine a, a simpler show, several things about it, especially if it wasn't based on like real events and things. The hero white cop is convinced that it's actually this white supremacist dude killing a whole bunch of people. The local white yokel cops like, no, it's them black peoples killing their own. And I've seen it before. And then the white hero, per, you know, perseveres and saves the black community from the white man. And that's the story. And actually, that happened all the time, I'm sure. And that or should have happened all the time. And it was terrible already. But here, they're actually being very subtle. Because, like, our hero, Holden, who is a white guy, but also doesn't seem very racist at all. Uh, he is convinced that it is a black person, but not because any, at least we don't see any sim- singles that it's like his bias. He just thinks, like, this is the pattern that I'm seeing, and this is the information I've seen from serial killers, and it, I don't think this would 
break that pattern. And yet the locals are, are more like, well, first of all, we don't really know if these are connected, like you said. But some of their theories are like, it's probably some white supremacist. <laughs> you know, so it's like subverted. Uh and and a lot, so I, I saw a lot of subtlety. You know, like a lot of the the usual by the book things you would expect are subverted, right. and in a way that feels organic. And that's yeah. one thing about the show in general that I like, which is it's not just all handed out in a platter easily. It's it's like yeah, nothing's perfect. Things go unsolved sometimes. It's you know right. Yeah, I agree, and I, I like that perspective. I, I wish they would have ratcheted up. A little. So there, there were two. There were two problems that I had with the racism sort of storyline. I suppose one is is that they didn't depict enough of the KKK presence, the white supremacy presence. They didn't depict enough the uh, white supremacy in the police force and the actual. Uh, um, uh, offenses and crimes that the police yeah. committed uh, yep. to, to black people. Um, they didn't. They also didn't depict the history, which I don't know how you do exactly. I mean, they just could have given it more uh, sort of talk or something. Because like, there's this one scene when the black people are in a church. Yeah, and they're all losing their shit because even their own black representative, they're no longer believing him. Right, and they they the way they depict it. They make the crowd look illogical, you know. They make the crowd look like they're they're a hysterical mass. Now the politician hmm. isn't looked doesn't look good either. But they kind of they kind of portrayed the the people as because what were they they were saying they were so, convinced it was a they were convinced it was a white supremacist yeah, right yeah and which is which is wrong according to the right, the storyline completely fair from. But they seem hysterical to me. Okay, okay, that's interesting. I, I didn't quite get the same sense because I got... Because, you know, they were reacting to, what, a bomb that went off or uh, some explosion that went off that, right. that killed them. And and that was coupled on top of all the kids disappearing. Right. So from right, my... So, right, so, so, the, so yeah. the investigators and the politician is like, there's no reason to believe these things are connected to the deaths of the kids. And there's a lot of reason to believe that this explosion was accidental. Yeah. And the people are standing up and they're like, no, it wasn't. You're ridiculous. You know, they're not like, let's look into it. They're like, you're wrong. It was the KKK. They yeah. blew up the thing. They killed our kids. It, it, to me, it looked like they were, the show was trying to portray the crowd as being hysterical. Okay. So to me, it looks like the show is trying to portray the crowd as a typical crowd, which are generally rushed to the conclusions okay. and hysterical. Okay. And I could relate to it because I'm like, I would have probably been yelling the same things in that crowd. But that's probably because you understand where these people are coming from. Yeah. Uh, because the way the show lays out, it's like, oh, there's this explosion. Yeah. And there's no question that it was it was on purpose. You know, it seems like it's pretty obvious yeah. like that it was accidental. These things happen. Um what they didn't show to people that don't really understand the backstory mm -hmm. of this community is the police brutality, one. And the actual explosions and bombs in churches and all this stuff. Right. Yeah. The things that actually happened. Yeah. That and, and without that background, which most white Americans don't have, then it, it just makes them look like a, uh, a, a crazed mass of people. Okay, uh, I could see how, for the benefit of of the majority of the viewers, uh, it could. But yeah, I, I didn't. I, I know that Holden says, yeah, yeah, they're just being irrational or whatever he says. Uh, but I, as a viewer, I took it like, well, 
sure, but that's not without reason. But your point is like... But if I was an African-American who grew up in Atlanta and I knew and I was old enough to know the actual terror that white people, uh, you know, some of them were inflicting upon uh, the people of of that community, um, I'd be like, well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, imagine after 9-11, like in October, (laughs) another plane crashes into a building. Right. And people are like, oh, it's not connected. (laughs) And and it's like, oh, and, and and the pilot was from Saudi Arabia. Right. It's like, oh, it's not. They're not connected. You'd be like, are you fucking kidding me? That was just me? an accident. Yeah, it was just just an accident. Accidents do we, happen. Yeah, we haven't looked into it that much, but we're fairly convinced. Everyone be like, well, actually, are you, you know, stupid? Right. Like, well, you don't even have to reach past what actually happened in nine eleven, because a lot of us were extremely suspicious about what actually happened. Yeah. Because our government had lied to us about so many things, and they were like. Well, this is highly convenient. So it's like the masses already do jump to conclusions when it when when it seems like there's a pattern about something. Based on history, I wasn't suspicious at all. I I, I was never. Um, I, I I think there was a lot of us. There were oh, sorry, there were a lot of us that initially weren't. Like when the thing happened, I was just like horrified. I hadn't even thought about it. But once the whole Iraq stuff started, myself included, a lot of us were like. Wait a minute. Yeah, not me. So I, that's I'm I'm curious. What is, do you just generally have a lot of faith in government or no. something? Or I, I to believe that they could pull this off has a lot of faith in the government. Oh, pull what off? Pull oh, off like a conspiracy a, a, like that? Oh no 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 not necessarily. But like just the fact that like clearly they used the event for a, a totally unrelated thing. Yeah, that's already a conspiracy. No. Of that, course it is. That's using... They, li- they had someone literally lie to the UN, completely with yeah. made-up evidence. Yeah. That's a conspiracy. Yeah, but that's not connected to 9-11. Well, it doesn't mean that they had the planes purposely crash into the thing. But that's what you were basically intimating, unless I'm misunderstanding. That, that was, some people went to that extent, for yeah, sure. which I never did. Well, fine, but, but what I'm trying to... Two things I'm trying to point out. It didn't even require another event to happen. Already, like, why did WT7 fall, all these things? And... Even if even if people like me that didn't go to that extreme, uh, we were actually right to be concerned that the government was not being on the up and up. Because guess what, the whole war was based on a lie a- after nine eleven. But based on the lie that that was caused by Iraq, yeah, that was all a lie. Yeah. So but I never believed that lie either. I I never believed. Well, that. sure. But then how how could we not expect that people seeing that oh the government lied about this, why should they trust anything else? Yeah, and we still don't know who killed JFK and blah blah. So like, it's not surprising that people jump to conclusions. Totally, yeah. yeah. Especially in certain communities who are more lied to than others. Um, so yeah, I wish they would have given that backstory. I wish they would have depicted a little bit more of the actual racism that was still absolutely in existence in Atlanta in the police force. But I also did like the fact. Like you said, that they did prevent, they did present a nuanced point of view, which is usually reality. It's not inconceivable to think that you would have a white cop in Atlanta who would look at the data and say, you know, I don't really see a connection here. In the same way that Tench didn't see a connection, uh, and also say, but I understand why they think there's a connection because white cops and we have, believe me, there's KKK members in that are 
in yeah. my in my police force, yeah. and you know, I, and I hate it. Yeah. Uh, so I get why the black community is uh, paranoid about our conclusions because uh, we haven't had a good tracker. You know, the the fact that they would have a character like that is um, I like, but I think you have to uh, earn it a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, because if you uh, if if you're not aware of the context and you just watch the show, you'd be like, I, I could see someone walking away going like, wow, black people in Atlanta back then were like hysterical and they weren't logical. They weren't, uh, uh, they were overly dramatic about things, you know? And it's like, um, so anyway. Yeah. Now let's get to actual Wayne Williams. Uh, do you know much about his story? The guy who was convicted of the murders in Atlanta? Nope. So I don't know much about it either, but the little bit that I did read about was that uh, the evidence that connected him to the murders was extremely tenuous. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, there was, it's all circumstantial. Mm-hmm. And although it, it looks bad and the TV show really shows you like it must be him. Yeah. Um, it's, quite possible to other people that it wasn't him. But it'd be like the whole Adnan Syed. So many of the suspects, like there was, you know, circumstantial evidence that looked really bad. For for other suspects. (laughs) For other suspects. Right. So the fact that, uh, you know, and you could see why the community and the prosecutors would want to really like find someone and blame it on one person so that the community would calm down. Uh, But even if he did kill... The two people that he was uh, convicted of, uh, I, th- I think it was mainly just a just a you know he certainly wasn't uh, there certainly wasn't a lot of evidence that he had killed all twenty eight right but that was the story that the police force and the politicians wanted yeah, yeah. to paint after that because they wanted to move on from that so they're absolute so there's a lot of compelling theories and similarly with the Adnan Syed case yeah. of like uh, there absolutely are other suspects that that. They could have looked at. It could have actually been the KKK. Did it actually stop after that? Um, yes, from oh. what I understand. Well, again, it's not like kids being killed did, right. didn't stop. Right, but, but yeah, but seemingly. Um, the other thing was uh, there could have been more than one killer. I mean, to me, that was one of the things that uh, seemed to stick out to me was that uh, you could have absolutely had like ten different individual killings. Like one killing could have been like. The father killed the kid. I mean, yeah. that, that happens sometimes. Another killing could have been a friend had killed the kid. Another killing could have been like a gang member killed the kid. Another killing could have been a KKK member. Another person could have been, uh, there could have been multiple uh, uh, sexual right. sadists who were murdering people at the time. And uh, it, when you look actually look at this case, it's um, there's a lot of holes, I, sh- I should just say. So, uh, I, But in the show, they... They didn't really depict that, you know what I mean? Um, I really liked the way they portrayed the mother's distrust of Holden and that relationship between Holden and that main uh, yep. that main mother. And her her glasses were just classic <laughs> 1980, you yep. know, just those giant plasticky uh, glasses. It was just I was just like, it's so good. Um, but you you in with her, you really got. The sense of the pain and betrayal yeah. for you know generations of being treated terribly. The one scene that I just I I just laughed out loud at was 
you know, Holden's finally getting some inroads with her, and she's mm-hmm. finally like kind of warming up slightly to yeah. him because he's um, proven that he's you know he's dedicated and he's right. been dedicated to this case, and he's managed to get the FBI to the town and right. a task force and da da da. And you know she's she's being a little bit warm, and she's like, "Go ahead and you know grab, grab some a cornbread. cornbread." Yeah, I thought you were gonna bring that up. <laughs> I thought the same thing. And it, then she grabs the he grabs the cornbread. That'll be a dollar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. I was like, you know, I'll offer you the cornbread, but I'm not going to give it to you. Still got to give us the dollar. <laughs> I loved it. Uh, okay, let's look at Tench's kid, Brian. Um, adopted age three. Uh, so he, uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong, but he watched older boys kill an infant. Yeah. Uh, and he was just there. He was there, and then he t- convinced them to put him on a cross. Right. So then Supposedly so that he could come back to life. Right. So Brian was like, well, if we put him on a cross, he'll come back yeah. to life. How old is he again? He's... Five? No. He's probably like eight or something, I'm sure, oh. I think. Um, so this was a, there was a similar incident that this probably was inspired by. Uh, uh, San Francisco, 1971, two brothers, seven and ten, were frustrated with a toddler because he wouldn't stop crying. They, they, they were hitting him, and they, they killed him with a brick. They hit him in the head with a brick. And then they wanted to resurrect him, so they put him on a cross. Ugh. And so a similar you know, case that they seem to be uh, pulling Ugh. from. Um, Brian seems to be regressing from the trauma He's wetting his bed, which is common to kids in trauma. Uh, he's playing with younger children's toys. He's sucking his thumb. And then we go to therapy, which is terrible. Again, uh, it, it's normal for TV and movies to depict therapy in this really terrible way. <laughs> and uh, it's possible that a therapist like this could have existed back then. But... Come on, writers! Like, throw it, throw us a bone here. Yeah. Like, does every clinician have to suck ass? Yeah. Like, I'm, yes, there are suck ass clinicians out there. And essentially, the sense I got from both that clinician as well as the social worker is they're the uh, the the pencil dick or the 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 ones from Ghostbusters, the the EPA agent yeah. from Ghostbusters. I mean, <laughs> it, yeah, it's possible, but not common especially now the physician who says i could send you down the hall to look at ink blots that's a little bit more believable to me based on what i understand 1980 to be like but the but this is just like such a bad depiction of therapy is it possible yeah Yeah, but come on people um she's first off the therapist is grilling brian to tell all about the trauma during a session with with the parents present and of course, Brian doesn't say anything right. because she's being a complete asshole to him. Right. She's not being warm. She's like, now tell us the story. I mean, no, I mean, non-clinicians understand that's not how you get someone to talk. <laughs> right. um, the therapist is super aloof and, and combative with yeah. Brian and, his, and the parents, like, She's the worst therapist that ever existed. Very judgmental questions. When it, and when it, in a classic sort of uh, depiction of terrible therapy, when something happens, she you know scribbles something. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. In her they notes. did that constantly. And then like both with the social worker and the therapist and everything. It's like 
what are you writing there? It's like in a comedy movie, you know? Like, yeah. What are you writing there? Yeah, yeah. Um, she gives a medication for bedwetting, uh, uh, desmopressin, which is a medication that it just decreases urine um, so that you don't have to pee at night. That's, mm-hmm. all, that's all it does. She doesn't say, um, maybe you should try not drinking water before you go to bed. <laughs> uh, she, do, she, also, right. she, she doesn't say, it's okay to wet your bed. It's, it, you right. know, obviously, you have no control over wetting your bed. So it's not a therapist for the kid. It's like the state's inquisitor. <laughs> but for what purpose? Right. Do you know what I mean? Uh, she tells the parents to punish Brian for wetting the bed which was common back then and a terrible practice, but I don't know if a therapist would have said that, honestly, but maybe. And then the mom steps forward and says, you know, maybe he's wetting the bed because he has therapists making him, you know, relive the experience. (laughs) And he has social workers coming to a school to observe him. And I was just like, yes. Yes. Thank you, mom, for pointing out something that uh, should be said. And, yeah, but still, like... uh, as a clinician, I'm just tired. It'd be like, you know, are are there Asians who say "asol"? You know, sure, yes. there might be. Sure, there might be some Asians who have a word in their language that sounds like "asol." I mean, you greet me that way every time, but yeah, is is that something that's possible? But if that's all you saw was Asians walking right. around in movies going "asol," <laughs> you know, like. Uh, Which is what we saw a lot in the 80s. <laughs> right. And it's like, let's get off of this. Yeah. You know, yes, there are some bad therapists out there, but most are at least average. You right. know, an average therapist is better than this therapist. <laughs> All right. Let's go into what we like about this uh, this uh, this season. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, okay. So I uh, very much enjoyed the mystery of it and the... I, I definitely like the ominous nature of them showing us, even from season one, showing us the BTK developing, developing. He's getting a little more elaborate. And, the, and there, those scenes are very economical, these very short little scenes. Yeah. But they show us, and it's so scary to watch. Like, like that, that one scene that you would think, if you saw it out of context, it's like so meaningless. He's taking the photocopies. And the, the the thing stuck or whatever, and he's trying to get the paper out, and then he finally kind of wrestles the paper because the one dude helps him, and and he's got the little symbol he's developing, and it's like, oh god, that's so creepy, you know. So I really like that sequence. Uh, I haven't seen the the ninth episode, so so maybe let's try not to spoil anything super spoilable. But I also really liked, um, I, I I liked the whole story in Atlanta because. Um, it, you know, in the first season, it was all like white people's problems, you know, like these white killers killing white people and stuff. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, right. Other communities are affected by this horrible kind of violence too. Uh, and it was a lot more subtlety there that, like I was saying, there was a lot more interactions that were interesting. I really liked Tench's problems. At first I was a little frustrated because part of my feeling was, I, and I do actually feel this way. I'm like, oh, okay, I see. So, coincidentally, the child of the main investigator in these serial killers might become a serial killer. Yeah, I didn't right? like that. So, I didn't like that convenience. But what I did like was the relationship between him and his wife, like those tensions, the um, 
the depictions of how difficult it would be if someone you love was involved in something so horrific, horrific, the difficulty in him balancing his professional life and his home life and not wanting to tell his colleagues that most of them and he was, and I, I like his character. I, I think as an actor, he's really effective because he has that balance of like, look, I'm just trying to be practical here. He's not maybe as smart as Holden, but he's got a lot of kind of good intuition about how to relate to people. That scene is brilliant when he's at the party. And like, you know, he's not a party guy, but he knows how to tell the right stories. He's got Yeah, good- I thought that was a brilliant even though it's kind of minor. Yeah. Uh, uh, expansion of his character. I mean, cuz if you just said, okay, from season 1, is yeah. Tench the sort of guy that would entertain a crowd right. at a at a work party? You'd be like, no, he's a tough guy, he's yeah. a man's man. But you know that's because those are those are stereotypes that we have of certain character types right in that are portrayed in movies and TV and books in real life people have a lot of sides to themselves yeah and Tench has this side to himself where he's a bit uh, extroverted and a bit narcissistic in a, in a crowd he he yeah. he actually he he's like give me the microphone I know how to talk you know and, and I got the sense that like in his rookier years his early years. That was probably his role within his friend group at work, right? He he was the guy who's like after work, go to the bar, and he's telling the stories, and everyone's kind of gathering around him. But then over the years, the the workforce kind of grinds him down a bit, and so you don't see as much of that. But when he gets a chance, it comes out. Did you know that Tench is a heartthrob at this point? What? Like a lot of women are are uh, oh, getting real hot and bothered. Really? Yeah. I had no clue. Yeah. Whoa! There's a whole thing, really. Yeah, and they asked him about it. Like, did you did you expect that you'd become a heartthrob? Are we shipping with trench or tench or whatever? Well, it's tent just shippers. I think it's just a lot of, because he's you know he's a man's man. Yeah, that's attractive to some people. He seems strong. He's uh, having marital troubles. Yeah, he might uh, be available. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so any you know. Everyone likes someone in a uniform, right? Uh, so anyway, now I want to get back to BTK. Do, do you do you know how BT the BTK uh, story, the true story? Not much. I I know that uh, he was very much into himself, like a lot of these folk are, and wanted the 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 world and the press to know, like that he was kind of in control and that what he did and all these things. Yeah. Uh, I know the guy they cast looks uncannily like him. That's one thing about this show that's yeah. amazing. The Charles Manson yeah. actor, I mean, to find someone that looks like the character mm-hmm. and then to find someone that can act like the yeah. character has got to be like <laughs> only one person on the planet. I should win an Emmy for casting for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The Ed Kemper actor actually oh, yeah. got a an Emmy last year. Oh, really? Yeah. And... It's, well deserved. Yeah, and so that's something that's just amazing. Like when you look at the side by side of some of these people, are just like, whoa. So, um, but I don't. I don't so know let me tell you a story more. about BTK yeah. because it, it actually. I, I'm curious if they'll ever resolve this. I think they will. But what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to fast forward to like 2005 because that's when he was right. caught. So BTK killed uh, ten ten people at least between 1974 and, and 1991 and so it was ten people so the reason why he was such a big deal was because he involved the media a lot mm. you know the Atlanta killers is 28 people and yeah. uh, the the guy who uh, the coral guy who killed all those young 
those young people, it was you know twenty eight plus people. But yeah. because there wasn't media involvement, we, we we don't remember it as much. And it's probably why he wasn't caught sooner, right? Because when you're a Ted Bundy and you're yeah. racking up the bodies and uncontrollably cl- killing more, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just wandering into a house and yeah. like randomly killing a bunch of people. Um, so uh, he. he BTK is seemingly a psychopath and a, and a sexual sadist. Obviously, he has no remorse or empathy, and he really got off by killing people and raping people. He, he apparently stopped killing in 1991, which is a long time after season two, right? But he kept trying to get attention years later by uh, you know sending stuff into the press and the police. Mm. So even though he stopped killing, he st- he kept like I'm I'm tricking you. Oh, and, uh, I see. And from Wikipedia, they say 2005. So this is like not that long ago, right? Um, in his letters to the police, Raider, this, that was BTK, asked if his writings, um, if put on a floppy disk, could be traced or not. So like, you know, if, if you know, a, a small three and a half inch floppy disk, he's like, he's like, Jeez. so if I put a, if I put a word doc on a floppy disk and send it into you, because I'm always trying to communicate with you. And I don't know why he th- maybe he thought it'd be easier. <laughs> and he asked the police, could you trace it? And the police answered his question in a newspaper <laughs> ad. Uh, they answered his question in a newspaper ad uh, posted in the Wichita Eagle saying it would be safe to use the disc. Uh, by the way, was he just stupid then? Yeah. So that's the thing I want to point out is like. They're not all Hannibal Lecter. No, like uh, they rarely are. In fact, yeah, they're 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 often. It's like Kemper might have been. <laughs> psychopaths are one, not necessarily geniuses. Two, even if they are, they're they're usually quite impulsive. Yeah, if you're a sexual sadist, you're you're compulsive about the act. Yeah, like the like very smart people can have very difficult compulsions right. of alcoholism, cigarettes. You know, very smart people smoke cigarettes, yeah. even though they know they shouldn't. So being smart doesn't mean you don't do self-destructive things. So he sent a floppy disk to a TV station in Wichita. The police got a hold of it, and they found metadata embedded... Of course! <laughs> so too. Embedded in a deleted Word doc. Oh, my God. Uh, the metadata contained the words Christ Lutheran Church, and the document was marked as last modified by someone named Dennis. Ugh. So they just had to go to Christ Lutheran Church in Wichita and say, is anyone uh, named Dennis, Dennis here? And they're like, yeah, Dennis Rader. And then DNA ev- evidence. Uh, this hit- is so unbelievable. I had no idea. That has got to be like, those agents must have been laughing their asses off. Well, but the FBI had been trying to find this guy for a long time. Yeah, and fair then, enough. And then to just have this, this random stupid yeah. mistake well after he had stopped killing people, long after he'd gotten away what with it all. What was he thinking they were going to say? Oh, no, if you send us that, we would be uh, able to look at metadata. Like, unbelievable. Yeah. Another, Maybe he wanted to be caught, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know. I, I, I just have the uh, people, including myself, are not always smart. We make bad choices. Of course. Uh, daily, on a daily basis. And um, and serial killers are no different. We but we think of serial killers as like, well, if you got away with it for so long, you must be really meticulous. Right. You must you know dot all your I's and cross all your T's. No one does that. 
and people make mistakes. And and that's why whenever they point to like, you know, 9-11 was an inside job, it's just like, so you're telling me that of the thousands of people who were involved in that conspiracy you claim, none of them uh, made a mistake right. that that is that or dozens of them didn't make mistakes that point towards that as being right. a conspiracy. No, so so the kind of thing you have to have for for a, a conspiracy, which is why I was bringing up that that uh, the example of the government lying, is uh, to your point. First of all, the more people you involve, the worse it gets. Yeah, but but even one person. But um, but the 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 catch is that it needs to be sort of uh, in your wheelhouse, if if I will. So um, in the case of these murderers, what I'm surprised about, and this is why I'm wondering if he just wanted to get caught, is like he certainly didn't need to keep communicating, but obviously he did. Right, he was compelled. Uh, And so that overrode whatever sense of like danger there might have been. Also, uh, you know, they might not feel sense of danger that much anyways because they're psychopaths, right? So, like, they might not have that sense of, like, oh, but what if I get caught? Right. Right? Yeah. I mean, most of us are cringing at the idea of of jaywalking in front of a police officer. Yeah. Uh, And to do this, you have to have a very low, um, a very high threshold for danger. Yeah. The other things I liked about the show, just to wrap up here, um, Fincher's camera and mood is always yeah. pleasant uh, and specific. It's like a dream yeah. the entire time. Um, I loved the attention to details with the interviews with the serial killers. Very good represent- representation, as far as I can tell, of the, of the different killers. Um, you know, It's really hard to do that in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Having said that, they allowed... Uh, there were scenes like the scene where um, they're interviewing people, you think, oh, yeah, that was just one scene. It's like 20 minutes of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> like, they don't, they really let it breathe. Yeah. And another writer would be like, this is too slow. We got to keep it moving. We got to, like, right. we need more action. You know, we need more shootouts and other, and, and yep. Holden having a panic attack. We can't just be sitting there talking for 20 minutes. And by the way, as, as convenient as it was, I, I really actually liked the scene where Manson is looking at them and going like, these are your children. They did what they did. And, right. and the, we know what, what the tension is going yeah. through. I like the new boss <laughs> uh, because the first season, the boss was such a cliche. Oh, yeah. He was constantly... You know, yelling at his underlings, yeah. and you know, I'm going to fire you. And it's just like, come on! I mean, damn it, Mel Gibson! Yeah, if you step out of line one last time, <laughs> I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> and you know, maybe it was accurate, but I'm just I like this new boss because, again, a character that is not usually represented but absolutely exists. You know, he's he's a political person. He's yeah. like, what is going to please the people in power? And it's trendy right now to do this. And so, um, you know, let, let's go in that direction. Tench's wife, I liked her character halfway because she isn't the classic trope of a nagging wife in season, mm. two, in season two. You know, where yeah. it'd be very uh, uh, tropey to have her just be like, you're, out, you're never home. Yeah. And, and she's, she's often in season two, she's just like, I kind of need you to be home. Yeah. But I'm a strong person. And... Um, but 
there are elements. So I liked her character halfway. The other half I didn't like because it did kind of have some of those elements. But again, maybe it's I, accurate. I, I, I did know. really like that scene. I mean, it was heartbreaking. But when she's saying, and I was giving him a bath, and then the thought that came to my head was that he's not mine. Right. I did nothing wrong. And it was such a heartbreaking, horrible thought for her to have. Yeah. But it felt like, oh, I bet you someone could have that thought. Right. And I've treated families Ugh. like this. I, I've treated families with young kids and teenagers yeah. who exhibited psychopathic and sadistic behavior. I worked with one family once who had a kid, a similar adopted. So Brian was adopted. Yeah. Um, three years in. So... Uh, we could assume that Brian, the kid, went through a tough time attachment-wise in the first years of life, which is common to a lot of people with troubles and common to a lot of serial killers. Now, to be clear, 99.999% of people with attachment injuries and adoption issues early in life do not become serial killers right. and, and don't murder anybody. But And um, many, many of the serial killers we know about were not adopted. <laughs> right. Yeah. But all of them... Uh, aside from maybe a couple exceptions, have strong evidence of massive attachment. Oh, totally, yeah. Injuries. I'm just saying that adoption is not a prerequisite right. for... Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but being adopted a three, yeah. more likelihood of, of attachment issues. Yeah. Um, and where was I going with that? Oh, that, you know, basically you've treated families oh, where yeah, they yeah. had... So I had this one family who had a kid who they had adopted and they were saints for adopting yeah. you know, this kid. And they were really worried now because the kid was like he would wake up in the middle of the night and move stuff around mm. to like freak him out. Mm. He would enter their room and like stare over them to like scare them and stuff. Oh. He would, when the parents weren't looking, he would, you know, pick up anything he could and throw it at his, at his younger sibling who was oh. a biological kid to the parents. He... Uh, you know, liked knives and, and, and he's like seven years old. Mm. And what do you do? Yeah. I mean, it's your kid. So right. they live with you. <laughs> you feed them. You have to love them. And you're, you're just like, there's a monster living in, in my house. Right. And it's not like the kid is just temporarily acting out or <sighs> it's just a matter of loving the kid because yeah. if you give the kid love, they'll stop doing this. It's not like that. It's like a constant pattern. Yeah. You've, you've voluntarily added a human monster oh. <laughs> into your family who can harm not only you, but obviously your other kids. Oh, no. Oh. And it's a very, very difficult situation, you know? Yeah. That's unbelievable. I really liked in the show how they showed how everyone was really fascinated with the stories that Tench was saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think Which they would be. Yeah. Think about it, right? I mean, we're fascinated. We're talking about the show. I think they're making fun of the audience. I could see that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, we think, are the uh, we are those cops. We're those <laughs> douchebags going, tell me more. Tell me more. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I, I don't know exactly what they're trying to say. I think, you know, this, this show is f subtle enough that I could see them. I don't know if they're saying anything with that. But I could also see them saying, look, people, because uh, I'm guessing that the writers in the off season, there was a lot of think pieces on like, why are we even watching stuff like this? Right. Yeah. And I think maybe the writers came to this conclusion is like, well, we just have a thing about this sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Like 
Fincher also made Zodiac, which is basically um, Mindhunter in a movie form. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm guessing Fincher is well aware of the f- weird phenomenon that people are just, you know, the biggest podcasts are about crime. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, he made seven. <laughs> all right. Um, so <clears throat> I also liked how they showed how boring good police work is. Uh, you know, there's no shootouts. Right. There's lots of meetings. Right. There are even, oh, my favorite sequence, actually, uh, t- for that angle, was when he's trying to get them to send out papers to recruit, yeah. you know, and then the, the one cop's like, well, all right, cool, what, what's your PO number? What? And then, and like, he gives them all this red tape, and then when he does all, jumps through all the hoops, he's like, well, there's no way we can do it now. Yeah. It's like too late. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just stuff like that. I mean, that's what being a police officer, it's not running in an alley and, right. and shooting guns. It's its paperwork. It's meetings. Right. It's gathering the data. It's uh, consulting with other people, you know. Yeah. Now, what I didn't like was, or what didn't you like? Did you mention all Yeah, I mentioned, so first of all, I did not like the story arc for the the doctor, the sorry, the uh, the therapist, the she's, psychologist. She's a, she's a doctor. The doctor psychologist. Just like I'm a doctor. Yeah, sorry. So because, what's her name? I keep forgetting. Wendy her name. Carr. Wendy. Not because I have a problem with her being a lesbian, or I have a problem with them showing her personal life and stuff. Just because I thought that her potential was wasted this season, mm-hmm. I wanted to see her. There was one moment where she came to shine, which was that interview, but. In a way, it was kind of like, oh, right, because she's a lesbian, she can relate. But I really was like, no, well, how is she a great psychologist? And in fact, well, don't show me that because she's a good character in the show, she can do what Holden can do. Now, Holden is Holden. What can she do? Hmm. And as we do this podcast, I was very interested in seeing the field of psychology develop in parallel with the field of FBI agency. And so that was disappointing to me. Another thing that I thought was, there are some moments in the show that uh, lag. And the, the thing is, in a movie, you know, if, if I'm watching a movie and it's got a couple of slow moments, in Fincher style, it probably would have been fine because it, it's just these little mood moments. But because these are like long, hour-long episodes, uh, there are parts where I'm like, oh, okay, just get back to the main story a little bit, you know, and I felt more than once that, that feeling. And maybe I was being a little impatient because I was trying to finish the episodes, you know, but I did feel that way. The other thing uh, that I didn't like, <clears throat> sorry, the other thing that I didn't like was the, uh, when, when in the first season, I did get a feeling like we, we had an arc for Holden that was like, all right, he's got some interesting ideas, but like he's really rough around the edges. But then he's going to be allowed to come in and shine. And he did. And he had some great insights. And that led to something. Where I thought that, w- that was going to happen this first this new season was he was going to really struggle with the post-traumatic or panic or whatever from his experience with, with um, uh, what's his name? But then they really did drop that after two episodes. And so I was like a little disappointed about that. Yeah. Now, like but me, it was probably better writing to it, do it that. It might be. But then like don't introduce it. Like... And, and and instead, I guess a different way to think about what, what annoyed me a little bit is they almost made him too perfect now, like too on the money. Right. So Yeah, I didn't I didn't like that either. Yeah. That's that's like the house yeah. Sherlock thing yeah. of this trope that 
our hero can see through the matrix instantly and no one's like that um yeah the things i didn't like are the following um all the green tint is getting ridiculous (laughs) uh it needs to be dialed back by at least 50 percent add a little red in there (laughs) i mean fincher it's like i get it you know you like the green tint It, it provides a mood for you but it's it's ridiculous um the sound editing in some parts were Horrific. Oh, really? Yeah, the dialogue, when they're in the bar, for example, there's other examples, too. Huh. The dialogue is way too quiet. The ambiance is way too loud. It was the same in season one, and it's it's a problem with Fincher's style in general. I wonder if I didn't experience it as much because I was listening through headphones on my phone. Maybe, maybe. Interesting. But I, there were times when I was watching the show where I was like, oh. I, I can't even hear what they're saying. Okay, okay. Um, uh, yeah, I didn't like the fact that Holden is always right. Because that's just kind of silly, um, and 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 not only that he's always right. There's no art to how he became right. Right, like that would have been okay. Like he he's figures it struggling, out, struggling, but he's yeah. got an insight. And sure, maybe it's a little more Hollywood, but I give me something to work with. Yeah, instead of like, like you're right. Like I walk in, it's like, oh, your leg's broken. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like if he said, based on our experience, yeah, people tend to kill within their own race. Yeah, but. Our science is pretty uh, uh, sh- uh, young at this point, so yeah. we don't really know. Yeah. Um, but based on that, I, I'm taking, I'm speculating yeah. that it is a, it's an African American killer. Right. Um, but I don't know. We'll just have. To, we need more data, and obviously, it could be anybody because we don't. It could be, you know, a, it could be a dog for all we know. It does. And, and it, but right. he doesn't say that. What he says is, it's a black person. It also undermines what one would think would be one of the premises of the show, which is that. This is how the field started developing. Unless the premise of the show is there is no field, you need super insightful one-offs, and if you don't get lucky that that's the agent working, you're not going to catch these people. Right. And maybe that's what their point is. <laughs> um, there was, t- I assume, have you got to the scene where he's carrying the cross? Yeah. That was a very weird scene to me. Very weird. I, I didn't get it. I didn't get it at all. I'm glad you didn't get I, it. I, freak, I, like, I thought, so I'm glad that you didn't get it, because I'm like, oh man, I must be rushing through these, because I don't understand what's happening. No, I, I had no, I, <laughs> one, okay, he's trying to get the cross to the thing, <laughs> yeah. because it'll it'll be a, a commemorative thing that the killer will want to go back to. Right, because I thought that was the whole point. It's like, they're trying to see if he comes back to things. Right. But instead of focusing on like the march and seeing who he sees, he's focusing on rushing to get this cross. What's the cross going to do? Right. Like, you could get the cross there 10 minutes later. Yeah. It, it doesn't really matter. Um, two, th- the crowd was depicted like a like a bunch of zombies. Yeah. <laughs> like, the, the way you... Like, if you just drop <laughs> yeah. that scene into it, you just Yeah, the watch, zombies are coming. <laughs> it looks like zombies are coming. Yeah. And the super, like... Like, you're right. It's like, he's trying to put a barrier up before the zombies are... Right. right. And then the uh, the fact that he's carrying the cross, oh, Holden yeah. is carrying. The I didn't cross. even think about that. Yeah, I mean, oh. it, it was it was pretty bad. Um, I, I, the whole scene, I was like, like three minutes in, I'm like, wait, have I missed something? And I, I even I even went back and I was like, no, I this scene is just. I think it was directed by because there's been different. Fincher only directed like some of the uh, episodes. I think whoever directed that episode didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. <laughs> that could be because... Or they're a zombie like <laughs> enthusiast or that something. That could be because I, for a second, thought, 
oh wait, was this part of the whole trying to see if it's a white supremacist? Are they gonna like burn this cross? Like what? What are we doing with the crosses? Like yeah, why is it so <laughs> important? Yeah, and two, why are we depicting everyone? And then he finally gets the cross up, and then the 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 marchers look at Holden and they stare at each other. And then the scene just ends. That's the end of the scene. And you're like... And they, no one looks for any killers anywhere. They never talk about it again. Yeah. It was just... I thought it was just... The, and they almost look at him because like it looks like they're pissed at him. Right. And I'm like, why are you pissed? He, he put up a cross. Like, in, in a normal situation, you'd be like, oh, that guy really wants to get that cross up. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, yeah, it was weird. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> um, and what I thought was going to happen was that the cross was going to fall over or something... And then everyone was going to think, because they didn't know he was an FBI agent, I thought they were going to think he was a KKK person. I don't know. Well, see, yeah. And and, anyways, a lot of things went through my mind trying to make sense of it, including, which would have made no sense, when he's trying to adjust the cross or like, I thought he was pulling out like a cigarette to to light it or something. (laughs) I mean, granted, it makes even less sense, but I was so lost that I'm like, I don't know what's happening. The stilted dialogue that Fincher prefers is both a good thing and a bad thing. In some ways, it's very economical. They, yeah. get, they get points across very quickly. But again, it's so dead. I yeah. mean, there is no life in this dialogue. Again, with the green, dial that back 50%. Um, it's supposed to be 1980, which was mostly accurate, like Wendy's condo, like the stripes on yeah. on the side of the on, on in the interior. Oh, my oh, dad ha- created those stripes because my dad's a like an artist. Uh-huh. He's not like an artist; he is an artist. And he, um, that's what he did when we moved into our house in uh-huh. the in the late in the 70s. And but by the time it was around 1980, he had created all of those stripes, and it's a very specific look and it probably only existed for a few years and and also the color palette has to be very specific because it's it's never primary colors it's like interesting shades of different colors and that really brought me back yeah so you i had a moment there where it was actually i got a little emotional i remember when trench trench tench takes his son to ice cream Hmm. um and then, do you remember the song that was playing? No. Arthur's theme. Oh. Once in a life you find... I all of a sudden was brought back to New York with my dad. because, oh. And going to ice cream in New York. Because that song was popular right then when I was living in New York. And I, my dad really liked that song. It's a great song. And it, we were in New York and it's about... Uh, getting lost in New York City. And I remember going to get ice cream with my dad. And something about the ominousness of what he was trying to deal with with his son and the ominous feelings I would feel in New York, probably as a result of all of the above happening at the time with me and everything. And and it was more dangerous in New York. So it's really for a second I was like taken back. And at first I kind of had a smile and then I got like these really sad feelings and like it was weird. Hmm. Um. One thing, though, that I thought was a little non-1980 was in the the Tench's bedroom, they had a VCR and a TV in the bedroom. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, which I was like, one, most people in 1980 didn't have VCRs. Right. Uh, two, to have a TV in the bedroom was really weird. I mean, now, obviously, everyone has a TV in the bedroom, or most people right. do. Right. Uh, but in in the 80s... 
usually people had what? just even rich people just had just one TV. Especially a cop, like an FBI cop. Right. So I, I don't know. It's just it's just again, most people it doesn't matter to them, but to me like that seems anachronistic. 1980 like 1995. Also, wouldn't beta have been a thing first? It might have even been a beta. I, oh, I don't okay. know, but the anyway. Yeah. Um and I also again didn't like the fact that Tenchus Kid was involved in a murder. Um, and some level it was kind of cool. Another level it's pretty cheesy. Particularly the scene where he's staring at the girl in the playground, and he has that real classic movie trope where he's like, you know, yeah. uh, looking like an evil person at the at the girl. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, I was like, oh come on. Yeah. <clears throat> and you know, I don't know where they're going with this. Like, are they are they saying he's developing into a yeah. killer, or is he just going through a tough time because? Anyway, it's just it's yeah, it's too convenient. It's like, wow, you're the lead FBI of the new you know agency or the new task force investigating serial killers and your son might be a serial killer. Yeah, I it just it's like, come on. Uh, on Facebook, I asked people what they thought of it. Uh, famous patron Lennon said that he uh, liked that they moved the season to be around Tenchmore. Um, mm-hmm. he said, I think they showed quite well how he is a decent, compassionate, well-balanced guy operating in a very difficult circumstance and how his wife is severely punished by the roles of the time. Yeah. Uh, he says, the portrayal of the political backdrop was great, and despite it all, they didn't make the local police mere hick stereotypes. Um, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the relationship of Wendy Carr was done quite well in terms of complexity and how it ended, though I thought the initial seduction was a bit stilted and didn't ring completely true to me. Um, I could see that. There's something, of deflation of, there's something of a deflation of ego of Ford, Holden, compared to the last season, despite all support. Blah, blah. Um, it's not all about one genius. So FBL gives it a thumbs up, it looks like. Patient Tasha, Tasha uh, says that she really liked it. Um, I was wondering how they, how they would present the Atlanta child murders and they seem to have a pretty fair approach that showed the politics and the attitudes of the time. They gave the mothers a voice that they never got during the actual murders. Um, final thoughts, bro. Well, one thing that, that I wish to see more of, and I don't know if it's going to happen, but in this season or next season, because I only have one episode left, so it's not going to happen this season. So there were a couple scenes where they briefly mentioned all these other serial killers. Ted Bundy was mentioned. Uh, they mentioned uh, the... Didn't they mention the Zodiac Killer? Right, yeah, because they said, oh, just like the Zodiac Killer, blah, blah, blah. And I all of a sudden got this sense, because, you know, when I first was watching the first season, I felt like in at the at the start, like, oh, they're just figuring out that there's these people doing these things. But here it feels like, oh, this stuff is happening now all the time, and there are all these things. And I yet haven't really understood what is the th- stuff they're formalizing, other than the random comments that Holden throws out. Like, oh, yeah, they mostly uh, have uh, consistent this or that. Like, I want more scenes with the science of it. Like, the, you know, where they discuss, like, the things that now they're pretty sure of. The, the Show me more diagrams. That, that, like, yeah, well, this is a pattern. Like, those kinds of scenes. Yeah, TED Talks. Geekiness. Talk. TED Talks. Yeah, I agree. That'd be good. And, but overall... I like it, and I'm definitely going to watch the next season. Me too. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there, and please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 